Kelly, do you have any more notes? Do you, do you need, like, brown M&Ms or something? Um, yes. I would Was that prefer... someone famous as Ryder? Yeah, they, no, they wanted, that's the, that's the, actually, the compliment of the, the famous Ryder. They wanted no brown M&Ms. Oh, it's no brown. Right. We all know why writers are there, right? They're not just ridiculous prima donnaness. Well, I think. Now well, I thought it was to make sure that I read the rest of the contract, right? Prima donnaness. Yeah, but yeah. It's- yeah, it's it's it's. I, at least I'm told. Yeah, it's just mostly like contract, you know, compliance insurance, which I guess kind of makes sense. Well, back in the day, in the hair rock shows, you know, they were they had some serious pyrotechnics going on, you know, and your crew yeah. had your life like literally in your hands. So if they couldn't get a bowl of M&M's right, how are they going to get your dual jet fire effects yeah. in a safe manner? Yeah, and I think it gives them something concrete they can like say that you did not comply with. Because if, if, if the place is being sloppy, but you, you don't have a way of saying, like, I don't trust that guy with my py- pyrotechnics, at least you can point to all the other line items that were not complied with correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, anyway, uh, so shall we begin? Yeah, introduce us, MJ. Okay, so welcome, uh, everyone, back to the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Matt Krause. And And I'm a special guest. Yay! Yes, sorry, you make special guests introduce themselves, apparently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I skipped rehearsal. So who are you, special guest? I'm Lori Skelly. Oh, wait, are we doing that thing like the first episode where you pretended to be anonymous for the first half and then had given every detail about (laughs) your lives and institutions by the end of the same episode? Yeah, that that pretense of anonymity fell apart pretty quickly. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, there's certain things we're not giving away. My credit card number is four. Yeah, exactly. But, you know... Yeah, unless you have real reason. I mean, they know our full names, obviously. Right, um, right, And right. approximately where we work. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right. Well, welcome, Laurie Skelly. So this is our uh, first occurrence of a guest star on this episode. Or, uh, well, sorry. It's also the first occurrence of a guest star on this particular episode, but it's also the, mainly the first occurrence of a guest star full stop. And Laurie Skelly is uh, a friend of mine from way back. Uh, what, about a decade now, right? Almost. Well, yeah, yeah, probably. Oh my God, since, yeah. <laughs> since the very beginning of our science career. Yeah, it must. I think it's officially a decade because I did my undergraduate thesis in the lab where you worked between undergrad and grad school, and I would have started that thesis in the fall of two thousand three. Yep. So yeah, as of a month or two, we've mm-hmm. uh, known each other ten years. Ten years. So, so as you've outed us, uh, yes, now the podcast knows every detail of our personal lives, including, uh, you know, our relationship turmoil and everything else. But uh, do you want to maybe uh, give a quick introduction to the people? Yes. Um, my name is Lori Skelly. I am an academic expat. You may call me Dr. Lori Skelly, <laughs> though it's not required. Um, I am also a neuroscientist of sorts. Uh, Although my diploma says psychology on it, I tried to get them to change that. They said I could scratch it out if I wanted to. Um, But (laughs) uh, I do, I did study the brain extensively. And now I have escaped academia. And I'm a data scientist. You're living the dream. I'm living the dream. 
I work in an office with coworkers, and we um, have lots of fun. I sit on a couch. And I don't know how much you want to go into the details, but you work for a company that does large, big data type stuff, right? Well, we do data stuff. Um, the bigness is kind of a flashy thing to say. Um, yeah. Most of the data we actually work with is uh, not, not that big. We do some okay. big data, but um, there are places that actually specialize with what do I do logistically when I have zillions and zillions of documents? And that's not what we do. We do. Well, right. You're not doing like scalability. Yeah. You're doing like analysis of yeah. whatever data people have at hand, right? Yeah. We do fun and awesome models on datas of any size. Datas. Mm -hmm. Datas. That, that, that's I think, I think the correct Latin plural is datases. Datases. Yeah. I wrote datums in a comment the other day. I'm hoping that someday... Someone will see that and snicker, and I'll be like, what? And they'll be like, did you write datums in this comment, in this piece of code? And I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> cool story, Ansel. Um, uh, what was, oh, and I, I was going to ask, have you, you guys have met in real life, right, the two of you? Me and Skelly? Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. We hung out at SFN in Chicago. Oh, that's um, true. And Skelly lived in Connecticut for a while when we all lived there. Yeah. Okay. We had a Connecticut overlap. The three of us. Okay, cool. So, uh, yeah, so we are the the uh, the brain twin triad, I guess, or the brain triplet triad, I think, uh, which I think is, you know, one of your major qualifications for being uh, the first guest star. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But also, you know, a general intellectual bon... Is it a bon vivante if you're a female, I guess? Oh, is it? Are you asking me because I'm supposed to speak French? I have no idea. Uh I don't know. Anyway, but yeah. I should really uh, learn French. Eh. Eh. But yeah, so Skelly, you know, we all have a neuroscience background, so eventually we'd like to get on to having some people on that don't have a neuroscience background, but uh, I think we're all interested enough in general things, uh, you know, to talk about general things. Yes. 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 I always assumed that this podcast was born of our nerd sniping email chains. It, it basically is. It's just nerd sniping out loud. Yeah. You're living the dream. Um, yes. As long as the dream comes with, uh, you know, cash prizes and Ferraris and supermodels and such. Which, by the way, we should maybe interject before. Well, we'll do the, I guess, the contact us, et cetera, stuff at the end. You think people listen all the way to the end of these podcasts? Have you seen them? They're really long. <laughs> you should That's see the unedited said. version. Yeah. <laughs> uh, seriously, the last one I think I cut down from like four hours of raw recordings. There was a giant spike in my bandwidth usage for like that morning. Yeah. Oh, if you hear explosions, that's on my end, not in Malaysia. Well, it could also be in Malaysia, for all we know, but I've sequestered myself in a relatively uh, soundproof room, so we'll see how it goes. I only have two rooms, and I'm in the, well, one of them. I'm expecting no explosions in Chicago tonight. All right. Well, you're missing out. So maybe, uh, Skelly, as the uh, guest star, you would like to uh, pick a topic to go with first from our copious show notes? Would I? Let me see. Or not from our show notes, if you prefer, if you have other stuff in the show notes in your brain. I like that I, I kind of attacked the show notes with some free association. Were you the one that wanted to talk about uh, Sing a Song of Sixpence? Yes. Well, I that, didn't actually. Yeah, that wasn't me. 
I, I didn't. That, that was sufficiently random that I, I figured either one of you could have written it, or I could have. Except <laughs> I, I was fairly certain I had not actually written it. Well, what on earth is that song about? I woke up thinking about it, and uh, it was the day after you'd shared this document with me, so I thought I would put my thought on there, and um, that's what I would do with it, because it is a weird nursery rhyme, and I have no idea what they're talking about. But I think it might be about a gang war. Pocket full of rye. Mm-hmm. Pocket full of rye. And we all know that rye is another name for... Liquor? <laughs> it's a kind of liquor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so he's got he's got his booze in his pocket. Sing a song and pets. Oh, it's like he's got his, his uh, gin and juice. Mm-hmm. What is it? What's the what's the lyric? Doesn't it something I got my something in my pocket? Maybe that's... Maybe I'm mixing... No, I think you're mixing songs. Yeah. 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 Sipping on gin and juice, so, laid back, my mind on my money and my money on so my So then, mind. like, yeah, that has no pockets. But the sixpence, right? So he's got the pocket full of rye and then the four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. Now, I assume that the blackbirds are a rival gang and they've been put in a pie to, you know, they're, they're, they're dead. And then they show the, the dead pie, the dead bird pie to the king and uh, the pies open and they sing. And I don't really have all the details worked out, but I'm pretty sure you could force that to work. Or at least like start one of those internet legends. Skelly, this is going to blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I have just obtained the, the oldest extant copy of this. Mm-hmm. Well, not actually, but... And the original lyrics were four and twenty naughty boys baked in a pie, which makes its gangland origins you know, much clearer, I think. P-Y-E. Pie. P-Y-E yeah, I'm, pie, yeah. I'm also reading the Wikipedia article on this, which has a Damn meaning interpretation it, section. <laughs> many interpretations have been placed on this rhyme. Yeah. Kraus, I think it's time to reveal that we are not actually super geniuses with infinite knowledge. We just uh, are quick at Wikipediaing things. Yeah. To be fair, that's most of our day jobs, too. Well, yeah. But yes, its origin and meanings are uncertain. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. This says an Italian cookbook from 1549 contained a recipe to make pies so that birds may be alive in them and fly out when it is cut up. Does this not sound like the worst idea? Oh, I actually saw this somewhere else the other day. Yeah, so they'd bake like a false bottom in the pie, and then you could load the birds into it, and then the guests would like cut it up, and it would uh, explode, basically explode in their face, and everyone would be like, ha ha ha, this is awesome. And then the birds would peck out their eyes, and that's what they'd get for coming to dinner. I am not eating at your house. That's fair. I, I feel like there's a reference to the Arrested Development dead dove uh, bit in there. <laughs> Live dove do not eat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, by the way, I just wanted to note that also, I don't want to get sniped on this right now, but it is apparently, I don't know if this is pronounced Roud or Rude, uh, the Roud Folk Song Index number 13191. And apparently there is an index of nearly 200,000 references to nearly 25,000 songs in the oral tradition of the English language. And this sounds like something I could spend some time uh, looking through, but I'm not. Oh, I have gotten sniped on that. Yeah, it'll it'll snipe you. Okay, I'm going to close all those tabs, both literally and in my mind. I was hoping it was actually the rude song folk index, where they're all just, you know, songs that are rude. Farts, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that I have an iTunes playlist of of that, basically. Uh, Okay, so... So looking down the show notes, who added the most awesome abstract in the, in history? Was that me? No. It wasn't me. I, I did. 
Oh, because I have that abstract printed out on my door. Oh, really? That's amazing. Yeah, it's great. Um, should we spoil the joke for? for Would you? Yeah, listening? you may as well, Scaly. You want to introduce it since you it's yours. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this was forwarded to me by a coworker, um, and it is the most awesome abstract in history. It's from a real journal, the Journal of Physics, a mathematical and theoretical. Which I don't actually know my physics journal, but I mean, the simpler they are, the more likely a journal is to be a legit journal. That's my general heuristic. I have that heuristic as well. Is that is there a way for us to formally analyze that? Because um, it usually works, but sometimes not, right? Yeah. Oh, you I mean like it... length of a journal title versus like legitimateness? Yeah. Well, impact factor should give you that, right? Right, yeah. <clears throat> if you believe in that. Well, well... well no, I'm being facetious. <laughs> I mean, I believe in it more than I don't, but I don't really believe in it. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I believe it in the sense that it's clearly correlated with the journal that you want to get into, but there are many, many caveats, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it would, I don't know, it probably is decent. But anyway, Journal of Physics is a real journal. And, um, is it? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was going to expand on the like the generality of journal title theory, but uh, you know, so by this logic, so like the best journals, of course, are Nature and Science, right? I think right. everyone can agree. So by that logic, I mean, could you have an even better journal that was just called like Stuff? Stuff was the one I was Things. going to say. The mind meld oh. persists. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I was going to say mud, and then I thought that wasn't so funny. <laughs> mud. Um. But wasn't um, <clears throat> wasn't stuff the, like the Maxim knockoff magazine that existed for a while? Does that still exist? There were several. I just um, my mind was refreshed on that yesterday because something referenced Jessica Beale's spread in Gear magazine when she appeared topless mm. while she was still on Seventh Heaven. It was a big scandal. And I was like, was oh, this yeah. real topless or was this fake headline topless? Because if you, you know. It often says so-and-so poses topless or poses naked, but then it just means that they, like, you know, have a hand over something or they're kind of turned. And that, that does not count to me. Well... I have I have very strong feelings about this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the lame kind of naked, but she was naked yeah. and posing. Like, I don't think, like, you're talking about naked pictures, and nobody said naked pictures. They said she posed naked for pictures, which she did do. Right. She got naked and posed for pictures, and then the pictures showed none of her fun bits. So right. that's a good distinction. But that was Gear magazine that I had not remembered existed. And then there was like FHM for him magazine, if you will, and stuff. <laughs> and, yeah. and Maxim survives. So. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It looks like the U.S. edition. Well, you, so it's apparently a British magazine stuff is. Uh, the U.S. edition folded in like 2007. Apparently there is a Malaysia edition. Which is one of the country's leading and best-selling consumer electronics magazines. Yeah. Yeah, America had a problem with Stuff Magazine. Because, um, they, you know, there were a lot of options for your, you know, drugstore rack tip magazine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but people weren't so into the high-caliber scientific research in Stuff. Mm. So you're saying this stuff was a little too highbrow. <laughs> they they really did try to to read it for the articles, and it was a little over their head. Well, you know, I've made this argument before, and I will stand by it. I don't um, I don't subscribe to Maxim now, uh, and it's been a while since I did. But 
in about 2000, it was actually some of the best comedy writing, like before Cracked.com existed. It was some of the best comedy writing out there. It was actually worth reading for the articles. Oh, yeah. And they um, they funded some cool stuff, too. Like, they would give money to nerds to do awesome stuff. Um, oh, really? Wait, yeah. Maxim would? Uh, Maxim that would be the yeah. awesomest funding thing to acknowledge on a paper. Right, right. There was this, I was uh, at MIT for a summer, and um, I, I met a young man whose summer project, he was making a video game, an interface, this is a bathroom video game. Oh, yeah, the P video game. The P video at game. At MIT. Oh, yeah. Yeah, from the Media Lab? Yeah. And Maxim So you that. knew this guy? I met him. Oh, that's cool, because I remember reading about it in Maxim, probably in the bathroom, actually. Well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. So Maxim did some cool stuff. I feel more appreciative of you than ever. You know famous people that make urination video games. We should, uh, well, well, we'll link up whatever that's called. This is, it's hit the popular press several times. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's hit the popular press and battered a bit. (laughs) Sometimes it's missed the popular press. Um, I also, before we get off the uh, Maxim topic, um, I would like to share with you a bit of trivia, which I believe... Uh, that Maxim is actually the uh, genesis behind the hipster love of Pabst Blue Ribbon. Because years ago, in about 2000 or 1999 or 2001 maybe, I remember reading an article where they did like the uh, a beer review, but it was all beers under you know X dollars per six pack. So it was things like Budweiser, PBR, etc. And it was universally agreed by the reviewers that PBR was the best cheap beer in the world. And I don't want to say that I knew that about Pabst Blue Ribbon before it was cool in the hipster circles to like Pabst Blue Ribbon, but I internalized that knowledge, and years later it actually became very popular, and I have a theory that they are actually the genesis of that, but I have no way of substantiating it. Interesting. Does that make you like a meta-hipster? I I have to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) I was a hipster before it was lame to be a hipster. (laughs) You guys have have heard the new joke about hipsters, right? No. Oh, you haven't heard about it yet? No. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I actually screwed up the delivery a little bit. It's supposed to be, oh, you haven't heard it yet. Uh, and uh, Andy Bellamer, who I hope to one day get as a guest on the podcast, had the best retort to that ever, which is like, oh, yeah, I haven't heard the joke. I've just heard about the joke. Ha, 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 ha. That reminds me of my other favorite joke. Did you guys hear about the corduroy pillow? No. No. It's making headlines. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's pretty good. All right. So anyway, uh, maybe we should... So I have a pun question since since we're going on puns. We're doing doing great at staying uh, on topic, by the way. (laughs) I feel like I'm fitting right in. Yeah. Do, Do puns work in like... In like Chinese, where you have you know different tones, can you make like a tone-based pun? Well, you know that Chinese superstition is actually kind of uh, is kind of tone-based, right? Well, I know about the of... four and the yeah. Jap- Jap- Japanese does this too, where you don't have a fourth floor because it sounds like death. Yeah, and that, that's from Chinese, I believe. And they also don't have a thirteenth floor because of the imported American superstition. So basically, buildings, or at least some Japanese built buildings, have like basically no floors. Well, that sounds even more dangerous. It does. It's kind of final destination-y. Why do you think they fall down so easily when Godzilla attacks them? No. (laughs) Do you want to tell everyone about your your Godzilla 
thought. Who's that, mine? Yeah. What was my thought? <laughs> you thought it was racist, but it turned out to be oh, actually correct. <laughs> yeah, I always thought – because you would hear people go like, you know, when they were imitating the the people in the original Japanese Godzilla movies, you, you'd hear like white people say like, oh, Gojira. And I was like, well, that's a really racist Japanese accent. And then I realized that Gojira is actually how they say Godzilla in Japanese and that Godzilla is apparently, you know, the Englishized version of Gojira. And I felt like – I'm not sure if I felt like a bad person or an overly righteous good person, but one of the two. That's weird. Oh, and in a similar – this is only vaguely similar, as you would expect. I got sniped the other day by a Wikipedia article about uh, Japanese loan words in English. There are a freaking lot – or Japanese false cognates in English. And there are a freaking lot of them. Like, describe. Uh, hold on, I'm trying to find the list. But uh, it's basically like words that got lexicalized like kind of weirdly. Okay, hold on. So, like, about, which it turns out to be like Japanesified into abouto, means someone who's like vague or sloppy or lazy. Like, this might be an abouto sort of podcast. Oh, you mean like they take an English word and kind of Japanify it? Well, they, they Japanify it, but the meaning shifts in some, like, weird and drifty way. Yeah. Mm. So, like, uh, glamour. Uh, so that's uh, guramo. Apparently means a large-breasted woman. Like, I guess through glamour magazines. Yeah, like a glamour model. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like, juice basically means soft drinks. Uh, like, including Coke or, like, even, mm. like, green tea. Which is sort of the opposite of the South, right? Where Coke is... Well, I was just going to say, we have I, we can't throw stones there, yeah, because everyone in the South calls uh, any sort of soda Coke, yeah. Um, well, parts of the see. South, not my parts of the South. Yeah. Um, my South parts do not have different names for soda pop. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Um, goo means good. <laughs> so there's a shop called Wonder Goo. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, there's, there's probably about 100 of them. It's It's really weird. So I have a question about this R's and L's thing to take it back sort of to the realm of brains. Well, with my yeah. C plus in Japanese, I, I totally got you covered. So, oh. so the R's and L's, when we like make jokes about it or comments about it, you know, it's like a swap, right? So yeah. you have a, an R sound in English. The stereotype is that the Japanese person would say an L sound and vice versa, yep. which I always thought was ridiculous when I was a kid, because if they could say both of them, why don't they just put them back where they belong and all this business would be right. over. So now being an overeducated brainy kind of person, is it that they just make an undifferentiated middle sound and that the difference yeah, it, is actually yeah. in our ears? Because it makes me think of, well, you know, no, the, the phoneme's in the middle. The pho- so yeah, I have so data the on this. in, in yeah. the middle, and then we hear at it from the two different directions and, like, overcorrect. So it's, like, the same sound, but when I expect it to be an L, it sounds like an R. And when I expect it to be an R, it sounds like an L, even though it's pretty much the same sound both times. Which means that the deficit is half in my ears and half in their tongues. And not just their problem. What's what's half in your ears and half in their Lots ears? Lots of things have been half in my ears <laughs> and half in the mouths of the Japanese. But no, but, <laughs> but right. So it's not just their production problem; it's my perception problem, which blew my mind. Well, it's like the weird categorical perception thing, right? So you, when you're not 
across the boundary, it like slams all the way back to to the other one. Mm-hmm. Isn't that yeah. right? Well, so I have. Um, I think it's partly what you said, Skelly. Partly, by the way, this gave me a great idea for an experiment, which I will tell you about in just a second. But um, <laughs> let me just make a note. Um, so uh, I have some data on this because I have a Japanese colleague. And uh, I guess I can I can make fun of her a little bit. So it's partly that, right? Like, because I don't. Can either of you make the Japanese RL sound very well? Well, I can make it to a C plus level of effectiveness. It's like uh, ri ri. It's so, somewhere in there. Yeah, I mean, I think what we have, what we call Godzilla, would be like not Gojira or Gojila, but like Gojira. Yeah. Yeah, that's Gojira. pretty cool. Gojila. Yeah. If you practice it, you can kind of. It does. It's weird because in English, it doesn't seem like R and L are adjacent, you know, or are similar sounds at all, or, yeah. as much as like "ba" and "pa," which you can kind of see the distinction. Well, that's a yeah, but that's a minimal pair, right? They only differ in terms of voicing, right? I think the R and the L is sort of like diagonal back and forward in your mouth. What? Now? I'm getting turned on. Ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I also got a C in phonetics. Those are my three C's in college. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I hope that you guys really do have an audience because I'm imagining people on the train right now like making stupid faces and like not yeah. saying syllables out loud. Yeah, there's there's literally dozens of people right now going ra la ra I've got another good yeah. one since we're here and it's very related. And this is so you know how um ping pong, if I say ping pong, it sounds great. And it sounds much better oh, yeah. than this if is a I great piece of trivia. Pong ping, right? Um, or yep. if I say tic tac toe, it just kind of flows, and you're like, yeah, that's the right order. Let's call it tic tac toe, and then it takes off. And there's actually a rule that governs when it sounds right, when you have either phonemes that differ with the vowel or the initial consonant. There's one rule for each of them. And so the rule for the vowel, so ping pong, is that the vowel should travel from the front of the mouth toward the back of the mouth. So if I say ping pong, the, the I in ping is up, you know, you can feel yourself making it up in the in your teethy, tonguey region, which I don't know the name of, and I don't care to learn the name of, because there's a lot of names for where in your mouth you make syllables, and that's too much for me. Um, so ping is up <laughs> in the front, true. and pong is in the backy region, um, as they like to say. So ping pong sounds right. And <laughs> I believe that's your, your frenular velar uh, apotheosis is uh, what that's called. by the hangy ball thingy is what I'm going yes. with. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, tic-tac-toe, the vowels travel backwards too. Now, when I get to this point, I always have trouble coming up with another one where the vowel stays the same and the initial consonant change, changes. Um, Willy-nilly. Willy-nilly. So the consonant rule goes the other way so willy nilly well that's a bad one because they both feel like they're right in the front willy nilly oh yeah that one no no the end should be more forward that's that's right yeah but that's not i mean we're not gonna okay that's a bad one on that one though people who don't already do stuff like this too much what's another good one uh things that rhyme Mm. and all i get are the other ones i'm like sing song no um knickknack yeah Things that rhyme. Uh, uh, wishy-washy. Yeah, I can I can only ever think of... I'm the same as you. I can only ever think of the vowel examples. Hong Kong. Okay. Hong Kong sounds better than Kong Hong because the consonants travel forward. So Hong Kong. Do they... 
Yeah. I feel like Hong Kong is also going backward. No, it's not. Hong Kong. You got to make the K Kong. up by your teeth and the H, H is Kong. in the middle. I don't I make, don't actually make I don't make Kong, Kong, Kong with my teeth. I make No, there's no Kong? K with your teeth. No, it's but it's yeah, up I closer do. to it. K, K. I don't know. No, but they travel forward. Okay, we're going to get I'll I'll debate you on the continents, but no, no. I, I mean, I think she's right, but uh, okay. I can't think of a good example. I think it's clearly less straightforward with the consonants than it is with the vowels. Right. The vowels have a very distinct like mouth throat location, but I'll yeah, I'll take your explanation. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Tie dye. Tie dye. That's a good one. Tie dye. Yeah. Tie dye. Tie dye. Yeah. Wait, no. But T and D are at the same place, aren't they? Tai dot. No, no tie you... is very front. Tie is, is under the front. teeth. And D is a D little is... Oh, you're right. T is on the bridge and... Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I love that one. So, Skelly, what's funny and more example of our brain twinness is not only is that also one of my favorite facts, at least the vowel version, which is all, usually all I describe, but you also explained it in virtually the same way as I always describe it, including the phrase, there's actually a rule... <laughs> determine, you know, <laughs> and in nearly the exact same tonality that I always use to describe this to people, um, which leads me to believe that one of us told the other about it. I think we both read it in a Steven Pinker book, probably. Quite possibly. Or I might have gotten it in a linguistics class taught by someone who had read a Steven Pinker book or something. But yeah, mm-hmm. you might have gotten it from Steve Pinker himself. Yeah, I might have. Um, but no, I didn't. Wait, where, where did you meet Steven Pinker? Well, that summer that I was... At MIT, I was... Oh, hanging out in the men's room. I know. <laughs> that is a good place to meet Steve Pinker, I think. <gasps> That's terrible. Take that back. But that was the last year that he was at MIT before he moved to Harvard. And I was some kind of um, undergraduate assistant. And I remember having this like horrible guilt trip because I didn't really do that much that summer. And now um, I was like, wait, that's what undergraduate lab assistants do. Yeah. But yeah, uh, he would never, ever remember. So I can give you documentation that I was there, but. <laughs> but he can't. No. Um, but yeah, that's what I did. And I uh, organized his EndNote library. And I recruited some uh, control subjects for a brain scanning study. So uh, so we should interject for the um, podcast audience that Steve Pinker is a a. Primarily a linguist, I guess, a uh, linguistic yeah. cognitive what? neuroscientist type per- psychologist, cognitive neuroscientist type person. What? Primarily a linguist. I think that like every linguist who listens to you just like shut it off and enrage. Well, he started out as a. Well, that's what I was going to say. He started out as a linguist. His, his research is linguistics, and now he's like a science but still, popularizer, he's like a mostly cognitive linguist. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's not making well. Well, so this is actually something you'd be privy to knowing, because like we kind of talked about um, the uh, the guy at Dan, whatever his name is, that does the music stuff at in Montreal, whose name I'm now forgetting. This is your brain on Love music, it. Dan. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and I felt like that was a little bit fluffy, and, and a lot of people have gone this way, right? They like have done some serious uh, research, but then they write a bunch of fairly fluffy books. And I don't know, like, uh, having not read Steve Peeker's actual academic research, like, how good his actual academic research is contrasted with the fluffiness of the popular books he writes. Um, I don't know. I actually went through one of his papers once. I think he had, a, like, a perception-y sort of paper, too. And it was really weird because it was like, you know, we're going to grind out this effect size and I'm not going to tell a grand story about it. 
But I think he at least used to go give, like, linguistics department talks. What do you think, Skelly? Uh, I think so, too. I think that it definitely was um, up to par in, like, the late 90s when that was what he mostly did, yeah. you know? So, like, in the days of the, you know, the Canwisher base area debate, you know? Yeah. And, and well, that was the last time I did any serious reading of his work anyway. So, right, yeah. yeah, with, like, yeah, regular verbs and things like that. I think that it was perfectly respectable. Speaking of popularizers who were formerly respectable, V.S. Ramachandran, too, used to be, like, a like a real person. Yeah. You get so disillusioned going through, like, graduate school because I remember really being blown away by his book, Phantoms in the Brain, as mm-hmm. an undergrad. And now the more I know and having met him in real life, I'm like, eh. Oh, but anyway, so I was going to say about um, these science popularizer guys. What is it in, like, the scientist's brain that makes you achieve some level of notoriety for your actual research and then go on to become like more and more kooky and speculative? Because either you see it in like the popularizer sense, like the Steve Pinkers and the V.S. Ramachandrans of the world, or you get like the actual genius nutjob person. Mm-hmm. Jim Watson, recently fired from the Jim Watson Institute. Yeah, so... Actually, did they rename it after he got fired? Like, how does that work? I think work? they did. There's some, like, Dunning-Krugering, too, like, scientifically, right? Like, uh, Linus Pauling went crazy with his vitamin C does everything thing. Yeah. He died of cancer from taking vitamin C instead of chemo. And Francis Crick had his weird triple helix thing. And yeah, I'm more, more interested in the, like, kooky end-of-life theories. Well, there's, a, there's an SMBC comic about that that I can't probably find right off the top of my head about how like every super distinguished scientist goes nuts and has a pet theory at the end of their life, usually in another field than what they became famous for, you know, and that you have to kind of just put them out to pasture and let them like speculate crazily to themselves. Yeah. This makes me think about, this makes me think about, um, did you read, well, it's not that, that terribly original of a, of a thought, but I was reading Nate Silver's book. Um, the signal and the noise. I knew you were going to say that. At some point tonight. No, I was. That was just a Nate Silver prediction joke. <laughs> it was not. It was not very good, apparently. <laughs> no, it wasn't that good. I was ninety-eight wow. percent certain that you would mention Nate Silver tonight. See that? I probably would have gotten that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been better. Take two. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. But so. This idea, and I think it's with, um, you know, investors or whatever. So every year they're, like, investing money and they get, you know, this kind of, this return. And they have this notion that some people are better pickers than others. And they'll say, well, every year over the last 10 years, I've gotten better than the market average returns. And yeah. they might just be the survivors of chance, right? So the first year... Right. A lot of people did better than I thought that was, then. like, almost definitely true. Right, right. So the same thing, why the, the same thing necessarily apply to scientists? So we think that this, the good scientists yeah. are the ones that make the amazing discoveries. You're like, well, no. The good scientists are the ones that have the, the discipline and the methodology in place. And their guests, and then some of their guesses turn out to be right. And those are the ones that get famous, you know? So the idea that those are better scientists than the ones that did everything right and didn't find something amazing that went in the newspapers, I think, is revealed by these second chance whiffs. When they do exactly what they did before, they're totally wrong. And it's not that they went crazy. It's just that they didn't realize that they had won the lottery the first time and thought that they 
could do whatever they wanted. Yeah, I think that's a, a bit of it. I mean, um, no, I totally think that, I think that is accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I was just going to interject for the podcast listeners. Somebody offhandedly mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is one of the awesomest things in recent years, I think. Um, oh, and not, I well, it's pretty well publicized, but not well enough publicized, which is basically the finding that uh, competent people tend to underestimate their own competence and incompetent people tend to overestimate their own competence because everyone's sort of prediction as to what other people are able to do is based on themselves effectively, or at least that's the thought. So like, you know, if a competent person gets a hundred percent on a test, they're like, well, obviously everyone else is going to get a good mark on this test because it's an easy test. You know, mm-hmm. everyone sort of thinks that they are more typical than they are. And, and similarly, the opposite effect tends to lead incompetent people to think, you know, that they're, if you're like below average, like everybody thinks they're an above average driver, you know, everyone wants to think they're about average. Ah, oh, I hate better. that statistic, but I will rant about that later. Is that not, well, I don't know if that's really a statistic or is, is it a well, statistic same. or is it a comedy bit? But I think it's actually true. I think that there are people who are much, much worse at driving and most people are much better than they are. What? You think it's a, a distribution thing? Like it's not a normal distribution? Yeah, I think there's a very there's there's a small population of terrible drivers, and then a relatively large population of decent drivers. I live in Asia. There is a large population of terrible drivers. <laughs> <laughs> but like the really bad drivers are really bad, right? There's no like intermediately yeah. bad drivers. Well, you lived in Connecticut too. I don't know that you can claim that. Huh. Uh, everyone drives fine in Connecticut. What? All right, Krauss has clearly been corrupted by his youth, his, the fact that he learned to drive in Connecticut. I think it's more than I live in Montreal now. Yeah. Mm. But nobody will actively say that they are, well, a few people will say that they are a worse than average driver, but most people think they're about average, right? Right. Yeah, which I think is probably about well, right, though. Brain, brains are bad at thinking about averages, though, right? Yeah. Brains are terrible at averages. And I bet you, so it's brains true. are terrible at averages, they're better at thinking in, like, medians right and then what if you like imagine a a distribution with a big thick left tail right so there are never mind on driving goodness and there's a big hump on the right and then it swoops out to the left with the really crappy drivers and yeah so if you take the midpoint if you take the midpoint of the range of driving like that's another way that you're folk brain can think about average driving and then almost everybody is above the hump. I bet you. It's also probably one of those like availability heuristic things or whatever, where like the above average drivers do not stand out. You know what I mean? Like if you're an amazing driver versus an average driver, both of you probably don't do anything that's super observable on the road, right? You don't notice the ones that are driving exactly as they should. Um, But the terrible drivers stick out like a sore thumb or like an extended middle finger. So, uh, you know what I mean? Everyone sees the bad drivers and pretty much everyone is better than the ones that are egregiously, easily, observably bad, you know, but you'd have Mm -hmm. to like actually look at your accident and ticket record and so forth to establish who's an average driver with like an average number of collisions or, you know, near collisions or whatever. Yeah. And there, there's another thing is that within my family, I'm known as a good driver, um, and everyone in my family is a little less than concerned about getting places extremely efficiently. So yeah. <laughs> stay with me. So at one point in my life, I was told I was not a good driver. And I was shocked. 
but there are a lot of different ways to be a good or bad driver. And they were talking about um, getting from point A to point B in the most direct path. And yeah. when faced with like that, um, that formalization, um, no, I'm probably a below average driver. But I'm thinking about, I don't think that that's important. That's why I don't put much attention to it. I think that I'm a good driver because I don't get in accidents and I, you know, am courteous. And those are the things that I think are important. So on top of all that other stuff, there are different things you can think of that you're like, but wait, I'm very good at these things. Yeah. And everyone does tend to emphasize the qualities in themselves that are better than average and you know yeah and if you have three distributions the chances that somebody is above average on at least one of them is pretty good yeah that's true that's true everyone's value function is kind of weighted towards the things that they have high value on yeah Ooh, i like that yeah that's that you can put that on my tombstone So, uh, so I have a couple of uh, things to go back up the tree, and then we should actually talk about one of the topics that we said we were going to talk about. Okay. Soon we will get to the world's shortest abstract. Exactly. The world's longest introduction <laughs> to the world's shortest abstract. <laughs> I forgot we haven't actually gotten there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, uh, what, one thing I was going to say is that also the, the aging scientist thing, do we think that that's just an extension of like – both the tendency of scientists to look for connections everywhere and the tendency of older people to begin to overgeneralize because, you know, as scientists like uh, Krauss and I talked about this, I think in the last episode, uh, a good example of, uh, of when I tried to overgeneralize, like we're always trying to look for these, or at least I am trying to look for these Malcolm Gladwell esque, like connections that tie the whole universe together. Like when I was saying, um, Oh, what, I wonder what else the uncanny Valley shows up in. And I kind of thought about that a while and I was like, oh, I guess not really that much, um, actually. You know, it's sort of face specific as far as I could tell. Mm. So we have this ability, this tendency to kind of like go off and try to overgeneralize a concept. But then, you know, older people, I think it's fair to say that, I mean, and I don't have any formal data behind this, but like, I think it's fair to say that over time, you have so many memories and you have formulated so many rules in your head that as you get older, your knowledge base becomes so generalized that you, you know, that's what wisdom supposedly is, right? It's like the ability to integrate over a vast number of observations and extract the generalities. And do you think that, you know, this aging scientist thing is sort of like a, a loss of ability that happens in aging to like inhibit the tendency to over generalize, you know, based on your extensive, but still limited domain of knowledge. Hmm. I don't know. You know, like old people do, the stereotype at least is like the Grandpa Simpson uh, onion on my belt uh, kind of monologue where, you know, people kind of free associate more and mind wander a bit more and, you know, conversationally wander a bit more. Not that we I'm going to free associate more when I get older. Yeah, we're going to be a horror show when we're really old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's good. You know, it is going to be very weird when the current generation becomes old people because, you know, our stereotype is like, the five Bs for a penny, you know, we'd wander down to the corner store and Jimmy would be playing the record on his Victrola and so forth. But, you know, in 50 years, our old people mind wandering stories are going to be like, and then there was the time we went to the Killers concert. Oh, I remember those days. We took so much ecstasy back then. You know, it's going to be a very weird sort of old person. Uh... I feel old already. I play this game sometimes where it's called Sit. 
and um, I will be like in a waiting room or on a train and the thing I'm doing will be sitting like in the waiting room or the train and it's pretty yep. it's pretty crazy like people someone asked me if I was okay once and um, wait I, what wait well I'm confused what's the game you just sit there and you don't do anything else yeah, I don't pull out my phone and look at stuff on the screen or read something. And it's weird. Oh. Like, you can be the only person who's just sitting there not doing anything. I remember a time where a waiting room was a place where yeah. you waited. Ha! Kids these days. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, working as I do uh, with undergrads all the time, uh, you know, our age right now is not that old. But, uh, you know, I made some reference... Or I just made some offhand comment. We were looking at some paper from the 90s, and I was like, they, they had done something kind of silly in the paper. And I was like, well, you know, it was the 90s. We all made some crazy decisions back then. And one of the undergrads was like, I was seven. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, uh, I was a yeah. sophomore in college or whatever, or freshman in college. Well, our generation is <sighs> in for it, though. Like, We can't make fun of anyone older than us because we had all these weird – technologies that were in between you know i feel like vinyl ruled for a really long time and then there were like cassettes and and compact discs which were you know slightly more efficient ways of carrying around musical music in physical form and then that's gone you know so we have all these cultural references that are just so ridiculous and we're really gonna sound like idiots when we have kids yeah i think it's debatable you know because i think everyone you know what I mean? Like everyone is tempted to say like, this is the whateverist time in human history, but uh, sure. it is true. I think our generation has maybe been the generation that grew up the most with like the transition between not information everywhere and mm-hmm. information everywhere, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it's true. Like, you know, when we were little, if you wanted to know something, you had to like go to the library, which just sounds weird now. Yeah. Yeah, you had to plagiarize out of the world book uh, encyclopedia, like like God intended, <laughs> rather than copying and pasting from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you had to write it by hand. Remember writing essays by hand? Yeah, we learned cursive. Yeah, I still can't write anything in cursive that's not my name. Yeah. Well, and I had to type reports occasionally on... A, a typewriter, typewriter, yes. Oh, God, we Whoa. sound really old. Whoa. Yeah. And I walked uphill in the snow both ways. Of course, that was my postdoc in Canada. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway, yeah, let's let's get off of this before this is we sad, like, sad age out of it. conversation. We are we are like an hour and a half in, and we are literally aging before our very eyes, and has still talked about half of one topic. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, um, I was just going to say because while we were still on the Japanese thing, uh, I have this Japanese colleague, and I can tell you that part of it is the fact that what they actually say is halfway between R and L, but. I think where the stereotype partially comes from is the fact that she misremembers, even if she knows that there are these two letters, she um, misremembers whether a word uses an R or an L because the distinction is not that clear to her. Mm -hmm. So like, she's always asking, um, she says like, Oh, we want to schedule this meeting when our schedules don't crash, for example, Uh... Um, which is just hilarious to all of us. It sort of makes sense in a, and she will actually write this. She won't just say it. She will write it that way. Like, she really does not remember the distinction between clash and crash. Interesting. Hmm. So, actually, I saw a thing when I interviewed at Carnegie Mellon that was supposed to help Japanese speakers with this, and it basically worked around that. So, every time you yeah. said, like, a sound with an L or an R, 
there was some software that would just like blast the appropriate phoneme. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's just weird to me. I think it's partly that, I, I mean, none of us are, Skelly, are you fluent in anything? English. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think the, I think the correct response to that is K. <laughs> um, well, Kraus, you're pretty fluent in Spanish actually. Right. But um, yeah, sort of, but, but I think we are probably all super anal to the extent that we've learned languages. And I think we've all learned a smattering of half a dozen languages. I think we're somewhat anal language learners in the sense that like, you know, I always remember there were kids in my like middle school Spanish class that would say like, hola, me llamo es whatever. Right. Like, like Peggy Hill Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Like they didn't even try. Yeah. yeah. And whereas we all know like the stupid gringo stereotypes and you know, like, we know that there's a difference between an N and an Enye, you know, in, in Spanish, right. said with his terrible American accent. And we we are careful about that. But it does seem like the majority of people, you know, even when they are told what the stereotypical accent is for their people in the language that they're speaking, you know, they don't make an effort. Like, you don't make an effort to learn the French R. You just say you're American R, you know? Well, that's my trick for speaking French. I, I try to pretend I have a ridiculous French accent. I've actually heard other people say that that's, that's actually the best way to do it is to over exaggerate. Like if I'm speaking German, I can say, Oh yes, I was going to the store the other day. But you're still speaking English. Well, I know, but in other words, but you get the right, like phonemes in there. Right. And then you switch into German and say, you know, ich got zum, uh, I can't remember the word for store, but, uh, you know, it's, it's actually easier. The more you kind of cartoonify the accent. To say the right the accent. The word for store, I think, is thing buying PlayStation. Ah, yeah. yes, it's Verstellungkaufen uh, <laughs> uh, Platz, I believe, is the uh, <laughs> uh, is the word. Mm-hmm. I had so much fun in Austria <laughs> just making up words for things, and then finding out that most of my guesses were at least somewhat on target. Yeah, like isn't plane flying thing? Uh, Flugzeug. Yeah. yeah, it's the thing that flies. Although I will note that. We make fun of this in German because their syllables tend to be a bit longer than in English, but we are just as guilty. I mean, our word for airplane is airplane. Our word for airport is airport. Like, we, somebody was like, what's it like if you have a port like with boats, but with things that fly? And somebody else was like, I'd call that an airport. Well, now we have like, spaceports too, right? Right. Where the rockets right. go. So it sounds sillier when it's in German. But at least it's a port, you know? And there are different kinds of ports. But my stereotype of German is like they don't use like port or station and uh, depot. It's like everything is a place or a thing or a machine. Yeah. So is that is it like lexicalized well, in German? Well, the thing about German, I think, is that more so than English, because uh, we talked about this also in a previous episode with the like Eskimo language stuff. More so than English, it's a language where prefixes and suffixes and such make a difference. So it's English does this quite a lot, right? But German does it even more, where like you know you can have a, a verb like like gehen, which is to go, and mm-hmm. but you know then you can have like vorgehen, entgehen. I, and I can't remember what any of these actually mean, so I'm probably just making up German words. But you can stick a lot of prefixes onto it to make it mean something that kind of means something related to going, but kind of changes the um, the meaning of the word, right? So yeah. the problem, of course, is that then when you make a compound word, 
out of two words that are each made of a root and a prefix or suffix, the word gets very rapidly, like, ridiculously long. But it's kind of the same rules of construction as English. Yeah, and that was the, that's the other thing, is that we don't really go beyond two, usually. You know? So if we had, like, we have, like, airport and train station... Yeah. And and this is all on on this is all on my like reverse engineering of jokes I've heard about German and not actually knowing German. But the joke yeah. would be like they wouldn't have airport and train station. They'd have like air place and train place and maybe like train coming in place. And that's where it gets foreign to our like language ears. Yeah. When you're sticking more than two pieces together. So I feel like we typically well, stop it smashing two things together to make a compound noun. It's true. Well, I think the difference is also like, or we build a phrase, right? So right. in English, mm -hmm. or and, it's a, and it's a little bit uh, disingenuous to call those different, right? Because it's, that's really about more how you write it. Because we have plenty, like, like German has plenty of verb plus separable or inseparable prefix constructions. And English does too. Like we have turn on, turn out, turn in, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Turn down. I think that was like the LSD slogan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, Ken Kesey. Uh, little did he know. Was it Ken Kesey? Tune in, turn on. Anyway. Um, mm. uh, but, you know, it's a minor difference in the language that we say, you know, turn this paper in. Where in German, you would say. That was say Timothy like, Leary. Oh, sorry, Timothy Leary. Ken Kesey was the it? electric Kool Aid acid test, right? Yeah. No, I, I knew it was Timothy Leary, but I did Google it to check. I get my, like, uh -huh. drug guys mixed up. Kenkeezy is the subject of the electric Kool-Aid acid oh, okay. test. I don't written know. Written by Tom Wolfe. Oh, okay. Anyway, but, you know, the, it's a relatively minor difference between English and German where you'd say, like, uh, in English you'd say, I will turn in, or I will turn this paper in. Or in German you'd say the linguistic uh, equivalent of, I will this paper in turn in, you know? You know what I mean? Where you like you join the the in and the turn together, and you know, I think it's debatable. Like this is a thing I think about all the time. Actually, you get a word like armchair, which is one of my favorite examples. How or like airport? How often do you really sit there and be like, oh, it's a chair with arms? You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like when you parse armchair, you don't think arm chair. Right, you know, it's become one word to you. So right. I don't know in the in the German mindset. I think you know it's partly because in English, the parts we've internalized the words, so the parts are not as evident to us. But we don't know German as well or at all, so the parts stick out to us. But in German, they're like, oh yeah, you know, Flugzeug. That's just a thing. That's just a that's an airplane. You know, just like we don't mm -hmm. sit there and parse apart airplane. And it is longer. So do you think if you, you could tease that apart with like priming experiments, right? Mm. Like does like does Flugzeug prime like random things because they're things? Like does armchair prime leg? Yeah. I mean, I would guess almost certainly not. Well, except that chairs have legs, but it doesn't prime like neck, for example. I, I, I would guess it would prime, but less than the word by itself. Do you, you think armchair would prime like spleen or some other body part? Well, arm and spleen don't prime that wouldn't prime that well anyway, but arm and leg would or arm and hand. And I yeah. think but I think I think armchair would prime hand more than it would prime Airplane. you know some unrelated word, but it would prime it less than arm by itself would. I mean, that's I'm sure someone's done this. 
We should we should look this up later. I'm, I'm trying to, but I don't... Uh, yeah, it sounds pretty embodied. Oh, we should talk yeah. about that at some point too. Oh, well, we, yeah, that's uh, that's more getting. Maybe if we have Chaz on, he can talk about that. Yeah, I mean, um, I can yell at Chaz for two hours. I Chaz would take it like a man. Uh, I think. You know, if if ideas were stock, we would be millionaires. Scientific trends were stock. I would hang on to embodied cognition. Really? I think I would. Really? Yeah. So, so as a cranky physiologist, like, I just don't see how it could possibly work, right? There's there's not, well, like, a... Well, it depends on... I guess we'd have to, like, set some terms, too. I think it's a psychological theory in search of an artificial distinction, myself. It's a psychological theory in search of a physiological distinction? What do you mean? Well, in other words, uh, so this I have the same complaint about embodied cognition that I have about mirror neurons. Wait, wait, quickly, explain what those are. We might be on the same page here, but proceed. So, so embodied cognition is the idea. I, I'm not going to have a very. Does anybody have a better definition of it? Because I'm going to make one up out of my butt. You haven't said one yet, so I don't know if mine's better. Go for it. Well, uh, I mean, it's just basically the idea that mental actions are kind of like covert. Uh, some mental actions are like covert expressions of physical actions, right? Like. Uh, that's a, not a very good at all description. I think that's bro- both both broader and narrower than they would claim. Hmm. I, I think, let's see, what would be... Webster's Dictionary defines embodied cognition as... No. Um, <laughs> they call it embodied cognition. According to Wikipedia, it's the argument that aspects of cognition are shaped by aspects of the body. Okay, that's not an awful definition. That's I think that's a good vague definition. And oh, that's then, like a B minus mm-hmm. definition. But yeah, okay. So and then the mirror neuron idea is the idea that um, you know they've observed in monkey experiments and in human experiments and so forth. You know there are parts of your brain that control like say your hand, obviously your your motor area for your hands. Right. Uh, but what you know there is a big deal made of the fact that certain of those neurons that control you know the monkey's hand will also fire when they see someone else moving their own hand in the same way. And they, you know, of course came up with a clever name for this, which is mirror neurons, meaning it activates when you do it yourself as well as when you see somebody else do it or when you see yourself do it. Mm-hmm. I'd say it fires, but you could say fires. it activates. Yeah. Well, yeah, activates in, in humans with fMRI or fires with a single neuron with a monkey. And, the, you know, the giant leap that has been made from this is that this is the basis of empathy, right? Like when we see someone else get hurt, we feel it the same way as ourselves getting hurt. And that's why, you know, we have empathy, right? Yeah. And there there are claims along the way of every degree of reasonableness to unreasonableness along that spectrum, right? Yeah. From like the observed physiological experiment to the, this is why we're nice. Well, exactly. And um, the thing I hate most is referring to parts of the brain as the mirror neuron system, like, of this course, is something yeah. that was designed by nature to be this way, not something we have observed. And, of course, my argument against both of these is, like, what's wrong with the idea of having a brain area that codes for an abstract concept of something? Like, why couldn't you just say that this part of the hand movie part of the brain codes for the abstract idea of that hand motion, irrespective of who is making it? And similarly, like embodied cognition, sure, you might have parts of the brain that both deal with, uh, 
well, let's say you're you're trying to like. I'm trying to think of. A, does anybody have a great example of embodied cognition? Well, so the classic one is the you know the backpack in the hill experiment. Yeah, that's the one that Chaz talks about in his paper. But but maybe describe it. Okay, so so, so the the shtick is this: they have you estimate the slope of a hill, and you give some number. You say it's you know it's like I don't know ten degrees, and then they slap this heavy backpack on you, and you don't you're still just standing at the base of the hill, and they ask you to estimate the slope of the hill again. And you give you give a larger estimate when you have a really heavy backpack on than when you're not wearing anything at all. And the uh, embodied cognition version of this is that you're sort of uh, gauging the amount of effort to go up the hill. So the hill actually appears steeper to you when you have a heavy backpack on versus when you're just sort of hanging out at the base with without something heavy to lug up the hill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess – I mean I guess the idea is – well, Chaz argues against the whole concept there, right? The whole backpack illusion concept. But well, there's an awesome control which, which like totally destroys the effect. Well, first of all, the effect size is really small, right? Yeah. But so the embodied cognition people say that uh, the reason you think it's steeper is that it's going to take you more effort to walk up and you're sort of like mentally translating effort or angle to effort and then back to angle before you give your answer. Except they think that that's not really what happens and it all happens in sort of the perceptual chunk of the brain. But the awesome control, which actually Chaz pointed out, is that – if you tell people that the backpack is for something else, so they're not going to have to carry it up the hill, but you're actually monitoring how they walk around or like where they look when they uh, look at the hill, then the effect completely goes away or mostly goes away. Okay. Well, so that's supposed to be a control against it? Yeah. So that's, that's saying if you change the mindset so it's not – so they're physically experiencing the same thing but have a diff- different mental framework that it's – that it eliminates the effect. Yeah. So that's, well, that's why I don't like the embodied cognition because I, they try to push it sort of down onto the, like into the percept. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the thing is like, if you're doing something like estimating the steepness of a hill, obviously your brain is not a calculator, right? So what you're really doing is making a bunch of loose associations, right? That come up with an approximate answer, unlike a computer, which would just use a formula. And I can certainly, you know, if you imagine having a backpack on, you know, it's going to lead to greater muscle tension and, you know, all kinds of things that may give like weird feedback to the various perceptual and motor systems that you might use to, you know, like you might imagine that one way you'd estimate the steepness of a hill is to simulate taking steps up it. And you know what I mean? Whether consciously Mm -hmm. or not and estimate how far you'd have to move your foot upwards and outwards with each step and, you know, divide those to get a slope. And that if you have greater, tension on your leg muscles from a backpack pressing down on you that that might distort your calculation right yeah yeah Yeah. but i think that's the that's the pro embodied cognition view i think well but is how is that different from saying like oh yeah well you got a bunch of stuff feeding into each other and it's all kind of noisy and uh you know adding noise to one area or like more activity to one area will kind of you know i don't know that that's a a theory so much it's just a way that the brain works all the time well I, i think yeah you lost me a little there. But do you think the hill actually looks steeper? Like, you know, we know what does visual processing, and it sure as hell is not getting, like, feedback from, I don't know, proprioceptive receptors in the leg. Yeah. Well, how are they reporting steepness? Is it a degree measure? Are they comparing it to some standard, or...? No, I think it's... Because... I think you, like, actually elicit a number. You elicit a... Well, I don't know anything about that. The only way I know to rate the steepness of a hill... I think that my mental unit for hill steepness is bummers. So it'd be like <laughs> five bummers. Man, this hill is so steep. It's like seven bummers. You know, and in San Francisco, it's probably like 12 bummers. Yeah. Well, that was one of the other things in that 
in Chaz's paper where he pointed out that people estimated like you know a, a random hill as being vastly steeper than the steepest hill in uh right yeah, I have no idea F- like funniness of the comment aside like you know it is true that maybe one way people do it is think like how much they don't want to walk up the hill and then try to convert that into a number of like a, a percent grade and if you rate the hill as more bummers then you might convert that to a higher number steepness right right Right, but that doesn't mean that you see the hill as being steeper, you know? I just don't know. I mean, in other words, what makes embodied cognition any different from any number of cognitive illusions, right? I mean, you can you can distort people's, you know, like the anchoring heuristic or something like that. You know, like the classic Kahneman and Tversky experiments. Not all embodied, but it shows things like, if I ask you to estimate, what's the classic number? You know, if I ask you to estimate the square area of Egypt or something like that. And then I just randomly give you the number, uh, like the square mile area of Egypt. Then I randomly give you the number like 200,000 square miles. You will tend to give an answer that is closer to the number I give you, even if I tell you it's unrelated to the actual answer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if I tell you 200,000 versus 100,000, you will anchor your estimate to the number I told you, even if I tell you it's uninformative, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So how is that different than just like a more physical version of a known, you know, cognitive heuristic, right? Is that you tend to be anchored by irrelevant information? Well, I don't think it is. I think you're totally right that you're, it's, it's a cognitive effect and not like a perceptual one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess with both of them, I don't see that there's a reason to interpret this, either the embodied cognition or the mirror neurons as any special thing other than like a general way that the, uh, brain works well i don't know i mean i think there were other embodied cognition effects like as anecdotally someone who uh i talk with my hands a lot um i oh i had this favorite i used i uh matt knows matt 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 johnson knows (laughs) yeah um more specificity required yeah, I used to teach Kaplan classes, and I would talk to, oh, we would talk about, you know, what do you do when you don't know the word, um, and this was back when there were still antonyms on the GRE, and so if you don't really know a word, but you kind of, and there was this great one where, I think the word was, um, like, disperse or something, well, no, everyone knows that, but some, oh, disseminate, if yep. you didn't know, if you couldn't give a, a definition for disseminate, I'm like, well, what does it mean? I'm like, go ahead and feel free to use your hands. So people would do this, like, <laughs> disseminating thing. They're, like, you know, they're distributing with their hands through the space in front of them. There, There is an incredible – oh, I was going a different way. There is an incredibly dirty joke I can make now about using your hands and disseminating. <laughs> yeah, they're all feeding chickens in my Kaplan class. So a bunch of students feeding chickens. And you I mean say, choking chickens? Opposite? No, I don't know what they were doing. Go ahead. I, I, you're much more knowledgeable in this area than I am. I defer to you. Um, so they're disseminating and I'm saying, what's the opposite of that hand motion you're making? And everybody starts, you know, swooping in towards themselves. And then everyone looks on the answer choices and there's one that clearly fits with that hand motion. Lo and behold, it's the correct answer. And things like that are interesting to me because it's, um, knowledge stored in a useful but not traditionally like semantic way, you know? Yeah. And I think that, so what I was going to say about embodied cognition and why I am not selling my stock, but holding on to it is I think that there's a lot of cool ideas about it, but I think that it's another one of those 
subject matters on like the cusp between psychology and neuroscience. Yeah. And it's just neat. It, and people just get so insistent on being taken seriously. And, you know, all the, the studies that I was seeing a lot of were the, um, the, uh, the TMS ones with like paired pulse inhibition or whatever. And the, the, you know, how much does your finger jump if you're doing this with this hand and you're thinking of these words and they got like unfun and I think people got sick of it and they yeah. couldn't think up anything cool to do studies about that weren't, you know, the same TMS studies iterated. Um, but I think it is cool and I think it is different and real. I think that we forget there's a whole body full of us. I mean, I have been, I mean, I'm biased because I have spent, since we've parted ways academically, I've had a, a lab mate who it kind of, not um, evangelizes because that makes it sound phony, but uh, he always draws your attention back to the body, the hormones, um, and uh, really cool things like posture that have an effect on cognition because, you know, your brain is there to drive your body around and to get input from it. You know, not just the eyes and the ears, too. So, yeah, there's. I think that there's so much that is skipped over that is really relevant in neuroscience from the body, but uh, it might need to ripen on the vine a little bit before yeah. there's awesome, awesome studies. Well, like the, the mirror neuron stuff, like I don't have a lot of trouble with a lot of the empirical data. I have trouble with the interpretation. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a little bit of the, like, um, you know, the uh, stray puppy problem, which is... You know, once you give it a name, you get too attached to it, right? More attached mm -hmm. to it than you need to be. So, like, once people give it a sexy name like mirror neuron system or embodied cognition, then they feel this need to make that a thing, you know, and to find that thing, sort of like my uh, my failed Uncanny Valley uh, idea. You know, they, they need to find it everywhere. Right. Rather than, you know, I, I totally am okay with those experiments. And this gets into, you know, the embodied cognition, the like social priming stuff where like you hand the, somebody hands you a hot cup of coffee and you, you know, are warmer towards them emotionally than you are if they hand you a cold cup of coffee, all that stuff. Like, I'm fine with those empirical results as long as you don't try to overgeneralize them to be like, you know, the brain is this way because everything in the brain represents something in the body, you know, in some diluted form. Well, and it depends on where you want to put it in the brain, right? Yeah. I think you'd think someone who gave you a cold cup of coffee is a jerk, right? but that's because it's, it's a jerky <laughs> thing to do. It's not well, because you're like trip channels have suddenly stopped sensing cold. Well, that's a little tricky, though, because I mean, that experiment, they, the same person handed someone off either a hot cup of coffee or a cold cup of coffee to just hold on to for a second. Although, of course, it's hard to do that kind of thing double blinded. So, you know. Um, right. No, no, but I, I think there is this yeah. weird trend I don't like of trying to push it like as far down as possible, right? Yeah, to make it like a sensory thing instead of a, uh, a higher level thing. So that's the embodied cognition thing, that it's, it's sensory rather than some sort of general cognitive effect. Right. And that's hard to justify, right? Because... Well, as a physiologist, it's clearly bullshit because we know that the peripheral neurons aren't changing, right? There's no possible way for them to be changing. Well, as we know, the brain is kind of a small world network, right? So like everything is not too many synapses away from everything else. But if you had to pick a most likely candidate for where this information is getting integrated, the place that integrates a lot of information from different senses and different uh, other areas and so forth is the more frontal, classically decision-making oriented parts of the brain. Oh, I thought you were going to say parietal lobe. <laughs> well, frontal uh, and parietal. 
So basically, like the brain-looking part of the brain is where that happens. The the part of the brain that all your senses feed into to get information integrated, you know, and produce a verbal or somehow overt response, right? Those tend to be what we call the quote-unquote high-level parts of the brain. So I would look there if I was looking for any sort of, you know, bias of one domain upon another. Because, yeah, the visual system, you know, the visual, like the the early parts of the visual system do get feedback from higher parts of the visual system. And those higher parts of the visual system may get some feedback from even more abstracted brain areas, but it gets diluted at every level such such that I don't think that's where you would see the main, the primary effects, right? Yeah. So I guess if, if I could have like one, one science wish, I would want Ch- Chaz and uh, what's this guy's name? Prophet? To uh to both give me like a spot in the brain where they think their effect happens. Yeah, well, I could get it from Chaz if you can get these sorts of people to believe in them. I mean, I think this is the problem is that we're bringing in neuroscience, and other people are bringing in sort of pure psychological theory. Yeah, I think that that's what I want. I kept objecting to you saying that mirror neurons and embodied cognition are the same thing because I think they're inverse of each other because I think. I think embodied cognition is like a psychology idea that wants to attach itself to the nervous system. And, you know, it should have a home there eventually, but, you know, take your time. Whereas mirror neurons, that was a cool neuroscience thing. Like, yeah, the frontal lobe integrates a lot of stuff, but those cells were lost. You know, they were recording from cell after cell, and they were motor cells because they were in a pretty straightforward motor area. And the fact that even if it is like a a cell that represents a more abstract concept of that motion, the fact that they found it there, that's cool, you know, and that was. Oh, I agree. That's totally cool that you get a high level, you know, cognitive representation and what you thought was just a dumb little area that made your muscle twitch. I totally agree that that is interesting. And then people took it and ran again for that border between psychology and neuroscience. And that's where things get really tedious and annoying and we end up ranting right. about them on podcasts right. <laughs> Touché. I mean, but, but again the tricky thing is of course as i know as someone who studied imagery and who has made kraus lie in the scanner for hours on end imagining screw that beach screw everything about that beach <laughs> right but we know that like i mean it's been known for a long time for example that motor imagery like imagining playing the piano activates your motor areas of your of your brain right or Actually, I have a question about that. Does it activate your actual muscles? Oh, like at a sub-threshold level? So we, we just, I just uh, heard this the other day. So we have monkeys that are, have been trained to keep their heads still, right, and just make eye movements for years. Like, like in some cases, you know, five or ten years of training. And if you put an EMG electrode to get like sort of sub-visible muscle activity in the neck muscles, they still activate the neck muscles. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I would think the answer is yes, probably, except, you know, it's all gray area, right? Like there could be a level below which, a level where you're making, you're envisioning your muscle activity so lightly that it doesn't actually activate the muscle fiber at all, right? Because mm-hmm. like it's a, it's a weak signal to begin with and then it attenuates a little bit on the way to the muscle. But you know what I mean? Then we're just talking about like... I don't know, like rounding error and uh Well it's sort of which way it goes, right? What do you I don't mean? know that it's I don't know that it's interesting to make a categorical categorical distinction. Categorical distinction? Oh, between I'm moving and I'm not moving? Yeah, exactly. I mean Yeah, yeah, no, like, exactly. I, I'd agree with that. But Well 
because there's moving so much you can tell and moving so much that you can't tell without an electrode. And then there's moving so little that the electrode can't really reliably distinguish it from noise. But is there like a distinct point where you're either moving or you're not moving? But the claim is that you get the motor activation without the motion. Well, okay. So I've seen you dance, MJ. And for something <laughs> like dancing, exactly. For something like dancing, I would say, no, there's no firm line there. I could be standing in a club with you and be like, aren't you going to dance? And you'll be like, I am dancing. I'm like, oh. And then later I'll be like, you look really good. I like your dancing. You're like, I wasn't dancing anymore. <laughs> and, uh, but so because that doesn't have anything. But I, I mean, a lot of these, the, the monkey stuff, especially like they're, they're grabbing cups, you know, they're grabbing objects off of a yeah. plate, they, you know, and that you're either doing or you're not, I'd say, you know. Right. Yeah. I just think it gets tricky when you start to like, uh, when you start to like put this everywhere, you know, I don't know. You start to put it everywhere. When you part, start to put the theory everywhere, um, mm-hmm. I don't. I, I think it's 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 the issue of generalization in general, right? In so far, like it's just I think trying to make these sorts of generalizations about brain areas and neurons and cognitive actions is the same problem as trying to make generalizations about like how a culture works, right? Or how you know. I like to think if you think about every neuron as like a human being. Wow, the homunculus just got huge. <laughs> Well, it's like trying to say, yeah, exactly. It's like trying to say, make some generalization about like how things work in America versus Canada versus Malaysia versus wherever. You know, you can make some generalizations, but it's ignoring the vast amounts of, you know, communication everything has with everywhere else, the fuzziness of that generalization and the limited amount of variability it can capture, the, you know, the millions of exceptions to that behavior, the, you know what I mean? Like, Yes, you can say that things often work a certain way, but, you know, I think it's impossible to fully, you know, I think it's impossible to even look at, like, the motor cortex and say, this is really only motor cortex, right? Because we know that your high-level actions, you know, like, thinking about moving your hand can make your hand neurons activate. But do you say that that's, can you, is there a way to, like, philosophically make the distinction between a hand area and a a hand moving area and a hand thinking about moving area or, or neuron, you know what I mean? Like it's, and it's going to get, you know, activated by like random noise, you know, sensory noise and so forth all the time to say that that one neuron does one thing when it's getting feedback from what you're thinking about in your frontal lobes, you know, what you're sensing with your sensory cortex and what you're actually doing with your muscle. You know what I mean? Like you, you could say that it all relates to the hand in some way, but then maybe, you know, you think about your foot, which semantically primes you're thinking about your hand, which causes, you know, one, you know, combined with random noise from the environment, causes maybe one firing of that neuron. So do you say that that's now both a hand neuron and a foot neuron? Or do you say like, yeah, well, you know, it's it's mostly a hand neuron. Fair. But yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think that, that people are trying to ascribe such rigid categories on them. And if they if they are, then then I judge them as you would. But we have to have a little bit of humility here, you know? And sometimes it is just news that we thought all these cells were in this little patch, were doing pretty low-level movement things. And then, oh, holy crap, these ones act like the moving ones, but nobody's moving, you know? That, yeah. And then, to, yeah, and then I think that you're right, that the, to call that then cells that do this is 
ignoring all the other million things it might do that you don't know because you haven't tested for every black swan. Um, yeah. So yeah, I both I both agree with you, but I think that that you can be a little dismissive of that too. Like we're we're all very very damaged people. Yeah. <laughs> Especially people who've ever ever scanned a brain and. Um, well, so speaking yeah. of, I mean, we've still got many threads to close, but um, I mean, I think this ties into the article that you may or may not want to discuss given your expertise, but the one that made me angry, um, which yeah. talks about the psychopath scanning. Oh, I still haven't read that. Someone give me a summary, please. Uh, psycho- psychopaths do not lack empathy. Rather, they can. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that, that bugs me about this. Like, like I said, I don't disagree with the result, you know, that observing someone else do something activates areas that you thought were previously like devoted exclusively to you doing the thing. That's cool. But this article, so uh, this is in the BBC, but I mean, it's reporting uh, a paper published in brain, by the way, an exception to the rule. I think that the shorter the journal name, <laughs> the better brain is an okay journal, but it's not it's okay, like yeah. fantastic. It's not a fake journal though. Maybe that's a good rule for fake versus not fake. True. I mean, it's yeah, but it's not as good as like journal of neuroscience, for example. True. But anyway, so basically, well, Skelly, did you read the article? Because this is your this is your uh, wheelhouse. If you want to talk about it, this is indeed my wheelhouse. I read the article. I skimmed it. I started with the popular spin on it. I don't know. Why did you do the summary? Because I think I would have like so many sidetracks before okay. I'd even say the title. Well, so the summary is basically so the idea is that psychopaths lack empathy, right? I think everybody, or you know knows that about psychopaths or are thought to mostly lack empathy. Everyone knows that Custer died at Little Bighorn. <laughs> what this neuroimaging study presupposes is maybe he didn't. Skelly, <laughs> I would cite the crap out of any article that started like that. <laughs> what, what is that from? I don't know that reference. It sounds oh, come on, Johnson. As Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. It's uh, Owen Wilson, right? Old Custer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, basically the idea is that, you know, if you put a regular person into a scanner and, you know, make them experience pain versus watching someone else experience pain, you will get activation in the mirror neuron system. Meaning that, uh, similar brain, or at least some extent of overlapping brain areas relating to the perception of pain will light up whether you are experiencing it or watching someone else experience it with no particular instructions to the person other than like, watch this happen. Okay, so the idea here, you know, is that you're activating this mirror neuron system, which is used as the basis of empathy, and that the same, you experience the same thing, at least in certain parts of your brain, whether you're actually experiencing something or watching someone else. And we don't even, yeah, we don't even need mirror neuron system for this. I mean, I know they invoke it in this study, but the, yeah, just, I mean, call it the, the pain matrix, call it regions involved in the personal perception of pain, whatever. Right. There are reasons that overlap when I feel pain and when I see you feel pain, right. whether I care about you or not. Yeah. Areas relating to the, yeah, to the perception of pain. Uh, okay. So, and typically if you put a psychopath into a scanner and do the same thing, you don't get that, or at least you get it less. Um, but in this particular study, reporting in brain, uh, basically if you tell the psychopaths explicitly to, let's see if I can find the exact instruction here. I think they told them to feel with them. Now, keep in mind, I think that this happened, uh, this study took place in the Netherlands. So I don't yeah. know how dorky that would sound to a Dutch psychopath. Um, right. But they were instructed <laughs> to feel with the person in the picture. 
I imagine right. it sounds approximately equivalently dorky. Right. Yes. So in some way, if you tell them to try to imagine what the person is experiencing or feel what they're feeling or whatever, you can get the psychopaths to display a pattern of quote unquote mirror neuron system activation that is more similar to a non-psychopathic individual. So the idea is, you know, the, the headline is psychopathic criminals have empathy switch that they can turn this empathy on and off at will. Discuss. But that's not empathy if you can turn it on and off at will, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I have my own strong opinions, but I wanted, I've opined plenty. Yeah, I need, I need a second to, to formulate my outrage. I, what I'd like to say is that um, in some way this study has succeeded in great ways because when I read it, I feel pain. Yeah. But not empathy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, if I were to strike these individuals that performed and wrote about this research. Empathy is the one that feels like rage, right? Yeah, exactly. I love to, to localize the... Uh... To localize the pain area of the brain, the subjects were struck with a ruler. Yeah. These were all subjects in Catholic school, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yes, if I were to um, if I were to watch someone striking Melissa Hoganboom with a ruler, who is the science reporter for BBC News, I would maybe not light up so much. What? Oh, because you don't like her. I thought she was hot, because that's usually what you mean when you talk about beating strange women. Striking women with rulers, yes. Striking, striking women. I was primed. Oh, right. Striking women versus striking women. Yeah, got it. Uh-huh. Anyway, so... Okay, so I don't understand how this is an empathy switch. Right. Well, it's not. Well, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's telling us things that we already know from any number of different perspectives. But I'd like to hear Skelly's take on it, since she knows psychopaths best of all of us. This sort of reminds me of Blade Runner. It reminds you of Blade Runner? Well, they have the empathy test, right? And to some extent, the robots like know approximately what they're about to, uh, what they should be saying. Right, but isn't well that the Blade Runner test is more like, isn't it like you're stranded in a desert with, uh, you know, three screwdrivers and a and a toenail clipper? What do you do? No, no, no. It starts off with like you know, if your mother's sick, how do you feel? And the, the robot is like, uh, sad. And then the one where he catches the robot out is this, like, complicated scenario involving a turtle flipped on its back, like, roasting in the desert or something. Okay. I thought it was more abstract questions that they were asking, but it's been a while since I've seen Blade Runner. I had to write an English paper on it in college, which is why I know so much about this. You did? Ah, liberal arts. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo, Jesuits. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Skelly, tell us what we should think. So, I think that the biggest issue with at least the popular take on this is empathy, right? So empathy itself. There's my favorite. So I I was in grad school for a couple of years, um, struggling to define empathy every time I, you know, gave a presentation or something. And then this chapter came out and I I can't find it right now, but um, it's something like the nine things people mean when they say empathy. Because when I talk about empathy, I can mean anything from kind of a more lay idea of it, like I care about you, and you can tell that I care about you because I do things that a caring person would do, right? So I'm empathic if I go, you know, help you stand up if you fall down, or if I refrain from saying honest opinions about you in front of a girl you want to impress. Like that's, that, those are empathic things and they're based on actions that have taken, right? So I've, a lot of stuff has already gone on by the time I can 
take those actions. And taking caring actions does not prove that empathy has happened. I could act like an empathic person to manipulate you, and I'm clearly not experiencing empathy, but I'm just acting like someone who has. Can we? Sorry, I was a little distracted. Can we go back to the part where you're expressing your uh, candid opinion of us? Is yeah, I was a little hung up on that derogatory too. Derogatory to, to the girl that we're hitting on. <laughs> you mean your candid opinion of us is not that we're lovely? Yeah. Um. Uh, no, lovely. That's that's how you wanted to be described to wonderful human beings, women that you might date. I think the word okay. uh, "large penis" might come into the conversation. Yeah, somewhere. you know. Yeah, probably not. No. Mm. Um. Uh, anyway, all right, move on. Sorry. I'd be happy to call you lovely and see how far that gets you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so we know that psychopaths don't act like empathic people act. That's how we find out that they're psychopaths. And without that, they're kind of not psychopaths. So psychopathic people can take the same actions that a empathic person would take whenever they want to, it doesn't mean that they have empathy. So that's one, one thing is that the idea is here that, you know, if you, if you tell people psychopaths have an empathy switch, people might think, oh, well, he can be nice and care when that's not what they're talking about. I mean, this is uh, one of the, not, not the only one, but like one of many distinctions between the type of lack of empathy you get in psychopathy versus like autism. Whereas in autism, you know, you typically don't get any sort of effort to engage socially in, in the sort of empathic way that a normal person would, uh, sorry, a, that's uh, that's normative that, neurotypical. A, uh, that a healthy person would, yes, a neurotypical individual would, but you know, in psychopathy, one of the things is that people are generally at least, you know, characterized by being glib, being socially functional in at least some sort of shallow sense and can turn on the charm and, you know, get people to do what they want and so forth. Which, you know, implies some understanding of human behavior that people with autism typically lack. Right, right. That's, is that fair? Yeah. So clearly understanding is there and the ability to behave in a socially, not necessarily appropriate, but like a socially functional way is known to be there. That's sort of what characterizes psychopathy. Sure. Yeah. And I do like, I like the old phrase um, that you might remember from earlier days, which is that psychopaths know the words, but not the music. And right. it's this idea that a psychopath knows what right and wrong are or is perfectly capable of that, like any other non-psychopathic person. Um, they, you know, they learn a lot. They're not, they're not cognitively impaired and can digest and build systems of cognitive things um, to know, like, how a person should behave if they pay attention to it and want to, right? But a normal person, I don't do bad things to you because... It actually physically hurts me, right? Like if I um, am roughhousing with my sister too much and she calls out in pain, I, you know, I back off immediately. I feel terrible. My stomach hurts. I'm like, oh, did I hurt you? You know, if I step on the cat, I would feel the same way. And so I, I shape my behavior based on these things that happen when no one's looking. Um, I just don't like it. Um, and that's like that's like the kind of empathy that I think is the difference between psychopaths and non-psychopaths that right and you know and that has a lot of pieces to it too so anytime you want to talk about empathy there's a lot of moving parts and it's really hard to point to even one conceptual component of it and say this is what i'm talking about let alone to attach that to some areas of the brain so in order for pain empathy to happen 
you have to have, you know, these layers of layers of, of things going on. And somewhere down there is some kind of motor resonance, which can include, you know, like pain sensations as well. And that's what this one is actually claiming. That's what they're actually demonstrating is right. some sort of, I watched this, I watched this like video clip of the, of the hand getting smacked and I resonate with it that, you know, I'm not just looking at some picture. It's become real to me. I'm mapping it onto my body. I'm like, oh, that's a hand. It hurts. I know what a hand is because I have one. I know what pain is because I've had it. And that's the way that it's processed. So this article says that, uh, or the study said that you can rescue that by instructing psychopaths to feel along with the person in the clip. And I think that, I mean, this is similar to another study that I wanted to run because, I mean, I worry about a lot of these studies that show reduced activation in psychopath groups for doing some task in a scanner. And it's really, there's not much precedence to back this up, but I mean, it's pretty common sense to say if I don't care about what you're doing, if I'm not engaged in the task that I'm doing, I'm probably going to have crappier brain scans, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, this is an intrinsic problem, right? Is because we know that psychopaths are not motivated, you know, uh, by right. the same, uh, you know, desire to just please people that non-psychopaths are. They're presumably, I don't know, you've you know, experienced this more directly than I have, but I presume when they do the study, they're just doing it because they think it's kind of cool or for the money, which is maybe um, why, you know, undergrads, I said this kind of in a comment on Reddit, like this is why undergrads participate in studies too, for the most part, but most of why we get a good result in um, in most psychology and neuroscience studies, I think, is because, you know, the person legitimately wants to do a good job just for the sake of doing a good job either to be nice to the, you know, or the experimenter who's, um, you know, pulling their hair out and like, you know, failing their dissertation if they don't get a good bit of research going, um, or just mm -hmm. so they don't look like, uh, you know, an uncooperative jackass to that person, even if they're never going to see them again. But presumably a psychopath would not feel the same, you know, necessity to please the experimenter just for the sake of being a nice person. Wait, no, 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 that can't be true because then you wouldn't get an effect at all. Well, I'm saying clearly you're doing something here, but in general, it's a problem that you might encounter in studies of psychopathy is sufficiently motivating the person to do the task. I mean, even if it's a boring, you know, working memory task or something like that, sufficiently motivating the um, psychopath as much as you could motivate an ordinary person or to right, equate right. the motivations, you know? Yeah, no, th th that's fair. But if they didn't care, right, then you wouldn't get any effective instruction, right? That's the whole th That's the whole point of this paper is you get some effective instruction. Well, they care in some sense, but it might be like, you know, you don't know if they got told, well, if you don't do it right, you don't get paid or whatever, you know. But there's mm -hmm. no, well, there's no behavior, right? They're, they're just sitting there thinking. Well, that's a very non-embodied cognition sort of way to look at it. Ha ha ha. Well, but, but for me, like, they're different. There are more differences between groups in this and like an unfortunate proportion of studies of psychopathy and fMRI. There's more different between the groups than psychopathy. This are, are criminals with psychopathy and volunteers who are matched on, I think, age and IQ, but they're not criminals. Uh, the discussion whines about this, although 
If I were to review this, my response would be, well, then if you'd like it to be published, maybe you should not do a shitty experiment, but you know. Yeah, so they did not scan non-psychopathic offenders. Uh, they couldn't mm-hmm. control for secondary factors linked to a criminal lifestyle, uh, like education, mm-hmm. history of drug abuse, length of incarceration. These were highly correlated with the group factor, R of 0.86. Holy shit. Disentangling mm-hmm. these contributions through nuisance covariance or analysis is impossible, which just means you this is a shit experiment. Right. Yeah. So this is a question for you, Skelly, actually. So are all psychopaths the same? What? Like, are there subtypes of psychopathy? Are there subtypes of psychopathy? Well, I mean, so, oh my gosh. The reason I'm pausing is because there, <laughs> I think that the last conference on psychopathy that I was aware of, most of the time, most of the time they spent bickering about, you know, redoing the construct of psychopathy and what formulation should be used. But Well, it's already, it's never been well-defined, right? Because, like, there's the psychopathy definition but that's never made it into the dsm right you know as such right Right. which is is really interesting too just historically yeah because i've heard a lot of people like really emphatically tell me what the difference is between a sociopath and a psychopath and i don't know where people get it but um yeah and and between antisocial personality disorder which is the closest thing to it in the dsm yeah, yeah. I just grant people that a sociopath is someone with antisocial personality disorder. I, w- I don't argue that point. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, yeah. But yeah. But anyway, so the, the most accepted way of, you know, if, you, if you're looking at research on psychopathy that's not about the construct, they probably used um, this measure uh, called the PCLR checklist, which is like saying ATM machine, but it's a psychopathy hmm. checklist. Indeed, that's what they did. Yeah, so they have it has two factors, and um, so you're you you score points. You go you do this uh, rigorous interview. The more animals you mutilate, the more points you score. Yes, you, you're racking up points, and yes. um, if you get if you pass the cutoff, like this this study has a low cutoff. I think it was like 26 out of 40. Yep. Um, I never take anybody below 30 personally, <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, so if you meet the cutoff, if you accumulate enough points, you are a psychopath. And I think that line can move. But there are two factors where all of these different points tend to accumulate. And one seems to have more to do with uh, acting badly, acting in antisocial ways. And the other one has more to do with having a flattened emotional experience of the world. Um, so... There are, and individuals vary on, it's not like they, they don't tend, they don't hang together. That's why they're different factors. Um, so you might have a psychopath who is very uh, impulsive and very uh, manipulative, but doesn't score as high on the lack of empathy, callous aspects, and you could have vice versa. So there are different kinds of psychopaths. Um, right. And, and presumably, yeah, I mean, there's all that, uh, there's, have you read all those books like Psychopath Next Door and stuff? I have not myself, but presumably no. like the CEO nope. type is the type with the flattened emotional experience, but more socially appropriate behavior. Right. And then, and then there are external factors. Like, um, yeah. like it's really hard to actually be a psychopath if you've never been in trouble. So. Well, it's funny because the study notes that, that it's, it is unclear whether these psychopaths that have never been incarcerated would show similar patterns of brain activity. Mm-hmm. So you're either you're yeah. flatter but less crazy, or you're much smarter but more crazy. Right, yeah. right. 
And, and if you have like a family that can keep you out of trouble because you're, you know, wealthy and from a particular part of the world or whatever. If you're like a Kennedy or something. I didn't say Kennedy. They're listening. <laughs> Hello, NSA. <laughs> you're talking to people in two foreign countries. They're definitely listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many how many NSA buzzwords we've said in this podcast. Turban. Plutonium. Turban. <laughs> we said Ramadan for crying out loud. Well, we had weren't we hadn't said it on the official podcast till now. Oh, that's <laughs> totally it. They're they're like <laughs> Happy Ramadan, everyone. Is it a happy time? It is once you can eat again. Solomon Pious Ramadan time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, well, this gets into a whole thing. Let's not get into it. Um, let's not get into it. We already, I mean, I think that we really pushed, pushed it as far as we could go with the Japanese R's and L's. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to get back to that. But, um, anyway, so I guess what I would say, like, what are your, cause I have overall opinions on the article, the, the science article and the newspaper article, but I, I want to hear yours before I, you know, stomp on them. So, uh, I think that if you compare people in a prison to people who are not in a prison and like to volunteer for research, whatever your brain area it is, it will probably light up more in the group that is not in prison. Now, this yeah. effect after the instruction, I don't know if you read it closely, but the effect is that when they're instructed to feel, the differences between groups disappear, which is what we like to call a null result which yes. is not so impressive. So I don't know. Um, and, and also, if you read the, the article, and I know that this is a, I have, I, f- I feel empathy because I have sat uh, looking at really, like what should have been a very cleanly designed study with lots and lots of psychopaths with incarcerated controls and um, been frustrated by uh, the lack of power. And been really, really jealous of people who study the visual system, who can flicker check, checker boards in front of people and get you know, T values of like thirty-eight. Um, Take that, suckers! Yeah. I know it's a messy construct and it's a messy group of people to study. But the results section is like, well, we tried this main effect and it and it didn't come out, and so we tried this other main effect and that wasn't significant. And then the things that come out that are significant, like required, there's just a lot of work to get to a significant result in this paper. Yeah. So, on the buy yeah. it, trash it, burn it scale. Well, yeah, and I mean on the on the interpretation level, I certainly think let, let's say they'd done all the right controls and everything, and you know got something that they could conclusively, you know, they had a hundred patients and a hundred like perfectly matched, you know, control subjects that were incarcerated and so forth, uh, and they got something really significant. I mean, the, at the interpretation level. I, I guess then we'd know like whether there is a, a reasonable good interpretation, right? Because like like you said, it could just be when you tell the people to feel with the participants, like you have to sort of think about what the chain of how empathy works is, right? I mean, clearly mm-hmm. their visual systems are intact. They can see that someone's getting like everyone can report that someone's getting struck with a ruler, right? Uh they have normal intelligence, so they can certainly infer that that means that the person in the video was feeling some pain. And presumably psychopaths also have the ability to then to, to have imagery of what it, you know, to imagine what it feels like to feel pain themselves. You know what I mean? So you can make it explicit. Right. It's very easy to say like, 
I mean, you could tell a computer, you know, first you perceive what's in the image, then you determine, you know, what the physical sensation would be of the individual in the image. Then you imagine what it would be like to experience that same physical sensation, right? Mm -hmm. And presumably that would activate, you know, that would, if psychopaths correctly followed that checklist of instructions, they would activate many of the same, more of the same brain areas that a control subject did you know, versus if they just zoned out or didn't care what was going on in the videos at all, right? But is that really telling mm-hmm. us anything about the nature of psychopathy? But don't we already know that they can turn on the charm when they need to? Well, that, exactly. So we already knew that in many ways they can turn on the charm. So clearly the brain is involved in that process, right? I mean... Right. And we also know that most of the low-level components of what they were instructed to do should be intact in psychopathy, right? Like, it would be weird if they didn't have the ability to imagine what it was like to feel pain themselves, so right, right. what? Right. once you explicitly instruct it that much, what's the difference? I mean, is it just that, I mean, I think what you're searching for is that there's something in the automaticity of how regular people feel empathy versus like that sort of formulaic construction. But is that anything that we have any hope of detecting? I mean, certainly there's got to be some difference, but is there any hope of really seeing that with brain scans? You know, it might be a very small difference. You know, most right. of the brain areas... You know, it, it, the difference might shrink to the point that you can't really reliably distinguish it from, like, the kind of variability in noise you see in any brain study. Absolutely. Well, and also, you think it's really fast, right? It's not the steady yeah. state difference that's interesting. It's the switch between the two conditions. Yeah, mm. and, I mean, you wouldn't be able to really pick that up very well with fMRI of watching a video, you know, both of which are pretty slow events. Well, it's, it's not yeah. even the video. Yeah. It's the, you need to catch that, like, like, the condition-related activity, like right when you get the cue, right? That, that's the part that's interesting. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. So to me, it would be very interesting, you know, if you could, if you could uh, open up psychopaths' brains like a monkey brain, drill a hole, find their mirror neuron, and then show those psychopaths and controls the same video with this instruction. And if you find out that that mirror neuron, that quote-unquote mirror neuron fires 200 milliseconds later in the psychopaths than the non-psychopaths, that's interesting, right? Because it implies that they are, they have to adopt a, a more stepwise, explicit strategy that is more streamlined and implicit in in healthy people, right? But no, no, I think you could you could even do this with scanning. You could just do a fast, like a fast event related design, but on each trial, instead of blocking by like feel with feel or just watch, you you vary the cue on each trial. Uh, well, I I think that before we even need to get into those kinds of, I just think that there's a piece, there's a chunk missing in the design. Like, I don't think that the results of this study are particularly compelling, but if there were, I would still be hesitant because there's no task where they're asking them to engage more with the stimuli in a way that's not caring, you know? Yeah. There wasn't like a detect, task where like, like detect a, 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 a small, like, target stimulus or something, something that forces them to pay close attention. Right, or like, guess what this dude had for breakfast? Something that's like imagination. You know, there's nothing like that. So all they have is that there's these motor resonance areas with some like pain components that uh, catch up when you ask them to engage. Yeah, that they they are no longer significantly different from control subjects when you ask them to engage with it. And the way that they ask them to engage with it just happens to be caring uh, in this case. Now, that's not to say that that I don't think that the premise is possible. Like, I think it's totally possible that uh, psychopaths can go into 
some sort of like empathic mode. You know, if you want to be charming and manipulative, that's, that's one thing that drove me crazy about the literature and psychopathy uh, were all these studies that would like take it down to emotion recognition and, and emotion naming and expect there to be differences between psychopaths and normal people on like naming the six basic emotions as depicted in, you know, those standard face pictures, yeah. you know, why, why would that be? Why would anyone expect that to be true? Right. I mean, you'd have to be pretty profoundly affected to not be able to do that. I mean, and I guess you do get that kind of thing in autism, you know, where people are less good at identifying subtle yeah, emotions. Part of the definition of autism isn't manipulating people. Like, I don't right. know what manipulating means to everyone else or being charming, but you kind of have to pay attention to your the object of your manipulation or charm, as it may be, and gauge their reactions to what you're saying. You know, there's right. a lot of, of emotional some kind of emotional intelligence in in these skills that psychopaths are, are have that's part of the the construct of psychopathy and it's it's kind of silly to think that that those basic tools wouldn't be there now i think it's plausible that they just sit outside and um aren't useful to psychopaths you know gauging how people are feeling all the time is how is a big part of how i navigate the world the social world you know, I, I monitor how people are feeling and I adjust how I interact with them, even when I'm not getting anything out of it. But a psychopath, yeah. I mean, I think that it's totally a, a cool idea that, that you could say, okay, now, um, and, and then they would come out of whatever previous state they'd been in and, and start resonating or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that that's a stupid idea. I don't think that's a stupid idea, but I don't think the study... Much well, it's certainly an interesting question to ask, like, to what extent psychopaths are capable of simulating what other people do naturally. But that's a pretty right. fine-grained, you know, I mean, you'd have to get at that in a very fine-grained way to, you know what I mean, to assign mm -hmm. a a, val a numerical value to, to what extent in various aspects, you know, psychopaths are able to approximate normal right, function. Right. And then, yeah. like, the, the money questions, like, how does that interact with my motivation and my, you know, behavior selection once yeah. I've had that, you know? I think I think that's the cool stuff. And in autism, you also have, like, the social motivation hypothesis, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is human brains are pretty good at learning to do very weird, random things, right? right. Like, you mm -hmm. know, we didn't evolve to do cup stacking and uh, parkour, but, you know... Nonetheless, uh, we can do those things with enough training. Mm -hmm. And similarly, like if you are not too profoundly, uh, you know, if your IQ is, is sufficiently high, even if you are not geared to do some of these things automatically, you can be taught them, right? Like yeah, high sufficiently high, like 70. autism patients. Right. Well, but, you know, if you've got an, a person with autism with an IQ of 115 who nonetheless, you know, has autism, you can train them quite, quite a bit to you know, just do, it's like a, it's like a catechism, like the call and response of appropriate social behavior. Right. And you can try to train them to recognize facial expressions and so forth. And they can do pretty well with it, but like, you know, they may have lacked the intrinsic social motivation that makes all of us want to do that just mm -hmm. for the sake of doing it. Right. And I think yeah. it's sort of similar in psychopaths, uh, that they lack certain intrinsic motivations to behave in certain ways, but yeah, that's not what the study is really getting at. They're sort of equating motivation and the differences go away, uh, at least presumably. Right, yeah. Yeah. And, and the real question may be like, you know, where where the difference in motivation comes from, not how well can you approximate, you know, regular behavior with the same motivation. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so it's we're at two and a half hours right now. We have many le- uh, many leaves on the tree yet to pull off. So shall we go up the tree and do lightning round as fast as possible? Sure. Oh, we should. Yeah. Skelly, you should give away the abstract. The world's best abstract. Oh yeah. Oh well, but so what was that? The last one on the tree. Do we have things before that? Well, I was doing this in I was doing this in a in a sort of uh, last in first out fashion. Do you have a stack? Have you have you built a stack? The stack is only now two items deep. But uh, yeah, so I was just going to pop off the stack uh, back to the Japanese LR discussion. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned that my colleague says things like not only says things but write things like clash instead of, or crash instead of clash mm-hmm. and vice versa. Do you think you could do a McGurk effect? Do you think the McGurk effect would fail to work in Japanese? I'm trying to think how this would work. Could you do a McGurk effect type experiment where you showed the Japanese LR sound? I guess you'd have to do like make show somebody making the Japanese in between sound, show it to like native English speakers with either the mouth motions of making R or L, you know, and see if they perceive it as R or L and then look at like Japanese speakers speaking English and see if, you know, would they not be subject to that same McGurk effect or less so? No, yeah, you have to have the phoneme to get the McGurk effect. Would that, would that be, an, I'm just, just trying to decide if that would be an interesting study or, or if that would be totally non-interesting. I would guess it's already been done, but I think the, the whole point of the McGurk effect is that you have to have the distinction. Well, I take it back. So the McGurk effect, classically, is when you see, let's, what is it? You see someone making the mouth motion for, I think it's ba, but you hear them saying the sound da, da or is it da? And you, It should be ba and da. No, so the video is ba, the audio is da, and your perception's ga, right? Okay, I, I think so. Um, And it's pretty interesting and profound, right? Because it's the kind of thing, it's one of these illusions that's so profound because you can close your eyes and listen to the video and you're like, that's clearly that sound. And then you open your eyes and watch the same video and you're like, holy crap, that's a totally different sound I'm hearing now. Did I tell you I showed our um, our RA this and she thought I was like messing with the computer? She made me walk across the room and play the video again. I mean, it's one of those rare, yeah, it's one of those rare illusions that's so profound you kind of don't believe you're not being screwed with. Can I tell you a secret? What? I've never gotten it. <gasps> what? No. And I'm kind of like worried that... I think something's wrong with you. <laughs> I, I want to like, I want to go do it. Like, I want to see someone like really calibrate their stuff and have other people. Like, I just, I've seen it a few times and... I have never experienced the McGurk effect. Interesting. I used a pretty good video in lab uh, from YouTube, which I can send you if you'd like to try it. Well, I've seen the YouTube ones. Uh, and they don't work for the you? The YouTube one works for you? No. Yeah. Yeah, it mm. works for me. And I think Krauss and I are both closer, like further along the autism spectrum than you are, uh, which is kind of surprising to me that, that you wouldn't feel Oh, it. it's not supposed to work in autism? Well, I don't know if it does, but I would expect it to work less well in autism. No, I think, no, I think it should. I think it should be fine. In autism? Yeah. Yeah, I don't Maybe. see that connection. Well, both delayed language skills and the general... But it, but it's expressive language skills, not... Oh, children with autism spectrum disorders show considerably less McGurk effect. See, booyah. Because it does involve the... Right, because you have to look at someone making a motion. Wait, 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 wait. I want to posit my Krauss theory that basically any neuropsychiatric condition shows some impairment or enhancement for all illusions. Well, yeah. But 
It makes some sense, right? Because you have to intuit what the person's motor actions are based on your vision of what... I mean, it's a mirror neuron thing, right? Uh, as much as I hate to say it. No, it's it's a language acquisition thing because it, the effect decreases with age. Oh, okay. I think it's an embodied cognition thing. <laughs> I will stab you over Skype, Skelly. <laughs> that, that, that is, that's, that's pretty awesome that we tied those all together. But it is true that, I mean, if you really want to get into it, isn't language acquisition kind of, kind of uh, an empathetic thing, right? Because you have to hear what other people are doing and imagine what, you know, imagine the connections they're making in their brain, right? If you hear someone say dog, whenever there's a dog around there, you have to have some theory of mind to say like, oh, they must be seeing that dog and associating with that word dog. I do. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, But, you know, I mean, language does involve a certain amount of like observing other people and trying to make yourself do the same thing, which you could argue is kind of like a, a certain form of empathy. Yeah, but there there are some like damning counter uh, data points for the notion that that language acquisition is like a motor resonance thing that it's you know mirror neuron domain motor learning. Okay, I mean I don't know the details of the research. I could be talking out my my hiney. So autistic children show a reduced McGurk effect for human sounds like speaking. But if you do a version with a tennis ball and, like, a bouncing beach ball, they come out about the same. Mmm. That's cool. Interesting. That's really weird. Now I need to find the video. Um, well, anyway, so while you're looking for the video, this I was just going off of, so, um, yeah, the classic McGurk effect is with the discrete sounds, ba, ga, and da. Um, but when I was teaching my programming class, one little thing we did just because I thought it would be cool is I I did sort of like a fake McGurk effect where I showed animated mouths making the um we, we had images of a mouth forming the syllables ba or the syllables ba ga and da and i you could digitally blend the sounds because uh, obviously the real mouth like this the sort of crappy animation we did didn't look enough like a real mouth to produce an actual mcgurk effect but what i what we then did is we blended sound waves of the sounds ba ga and da to find like an ambiguous like an ambiguous point where, you know, it sounded equally like ba and ga. And then the question was going to be, if you watched that animated mouth making one of the sounds, was that sufficient to change your perception of what the uh, syllables were? And anyway, it wasn't a real experiment. It was just kind of, uh, I never got it calibrated well enough to really, really test it because like, you know, if you equally blend like ba and da, it might sound more like da than ba. So you have to do a really careful calibration with each person to like, get it right to that like ambiguous point and we never i kept meaning to go back and test it on, on at least myself but i never have um but anyway i was imagining something more like that for the japanese lr speakers like have sound of people like actual japanese people going i uh, can't uh, don't know if i can do it la la ra and you know then and then see if you can push that percept of that in between sound into the r domain or the l domain and whether that works better for I, I expect it would be it would come out if you did it right, but I don't know if it'd be that interesting because all it really says is, yeah, Japanese people have a harder time distinguishing and thus would be less affected by the video than yeah. American or English speakers. I think it would be know. cool to to watch it over time. Yeah, yeah, as you learn English, that would actually be kind of cool. Yeah, that's what I thought was cool to do it with like speakers since one year and speakers since five years, and yeah, yeah. So it and. Um, because it sounds like it sounds like what you were saying was there's some overcorrection and then I don't know that that sounds pretty cool to me. To hey, you can, you should right. do that at Yale. Just like grab some Japanese classes. All right. Well, maybe I'll add that to my giant list of uh, 
of things I will probably never get around to. Anyway. All right. So shall we go back to the physics abstract? Because that's the last item in the, <laughs> in the stack. Yay. Pop it. So remember when back when they had um, – they were like, did we just measure – particles traveling faster than light. I think we might have, and everyone was like, oh my god, maybe. And, um, spoiler, it turned out, what was it, a loose cable or something? No, they, someone added an extension cable, like some grad student or something. Yeah. So, <laughs> to- to- totally serious. Right. So it was something not at all... Not at all interesting, yeah. It was just that right. the measurement was off of how much distance they covered or how much time it took them, one or the other. Right, yeah. So... Travel back in time to before we knew that, when there were just there was just the observation and the did she or didn't she, um, and that's when this paper came out. <laughs> it's from the Journal of Physics, A, from 2011, and it says uh, the title is "Can apparent superluminal neutrino speeds oh superluminal like faster than yeah, light, faster than light. light. <laughs> superluminal uh, be explained as a quantum weak measurement." <laughs> and it's easy to skip the abstract. So can they be were they were they faster than light? And the abstract is two words. It says probably not. Wow. Oh, you're right. It was a loose connection between the the GPS and the computer. Mm. They had a GPS. Yeah, that's how they do the timing. Because the this is actually kind of cool. All the GPS satellites do is spew out time, like more or less. When you reach Bern, Switzerland, turn left. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> And and the neutrino's like, I don't know if that's right. Recalcul- <laughs> recalculating. Yes. Yeah, very literally, it was a lot of recalculating going on in that, uh, in that series of experiments. Mm. Mm, yeah. All right. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. Was that a Canadian journal, do you think? Journal of Physics, eh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. I really wanted to talk about taste. Oh, my gosh. Can we do like a two-minute version of like five or ten of our topics? Because we are accumulating topics okay. of like insane people. Uh, do you have a sensory one? I have a sensory one of Skelly well, does have, taste. We have the taste. We have the tasticles articles. Okay, go. Sorry, <laughs> is that what you wanted to talk about, Skelly? Is the tasticles? It no, but it's related. Okay, All right, go ahead. Okay, this is about taste receptors and carbonation, and I was trying to find. I hope that someone. Who listens to this will know the radio story I'm talking about and tell you and you can tell me because it was a really well done radio story and it's a really cool effect so and I probably told you guys this before personally um, but do you know what makes carbonated beverages taste fizzy and if you google this you're gonna get half the story because that's all I could find when I was looking today I mean carbon dioxide forms carbonic acid so I mean you, you certainly would taste the acid but I don't know if that's what you're getting at Plus the physical sensation of bubbles forming on your tongue, but I assume that's not what you're saying. Right. So the so if it was if it was the, the carbonic acid, what what receptors do you think that would be? That would presumably be your sour receptors, right? Yeah. So you've got your sour receptors in there. Are those yeah. just proton receptors? Are they just proton receptors? I'm they might be, um, I'm not sure. Yeah, they're H minus, sure. which is a proton. Okay. H plus. Or yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, so there's sour receptors is part of the story. It's not the whole deal. So there's the sour receptors, and then it also activates pain receptors. Mm. So the like the tingle of soda actually 
is from carbon dioxide activating the same receptors that capsaicin activates, a little tasty pain re receptors, um, and the two of those together give you the experience of fizzy carbonation. And the, so this, this radio story I heard was really cool because um, the reason they, they started looking into it was um, these mountain climbers would, uh, you know, they, they'd be going up Everest and they'd want to have some champagne at, at base camp. Wouldn't the champagne explode about halfway up due to the pressure changes? I don't know. I guess so not, huh? The point was that, that it, tasted, it tasted flat. Oh. And it tasted gross. Right, so they uh, wanted to know why their 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 champagne or their beer didn't taste so good, and someone said, you know, oh, it must be about the pressure. And then they did this part where they went into a hyperbaric chamber, and and um, people drank beer at a sufficient sufficient atmospheric pressure that there wasn't there weren't any active bubbles coming out of the solution. Right, so you have oh, so this is the opposite of of Mount Everest. This is high pressure, so. It's keeping everything in solution, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they kept everything in solution. There's dissolved carbon dioxide, but no bubbles, and still yeah. tasted fizzy, which is... Really? Yes! Huh. Which is awesome. I, yeah, because I always thought it was just like tiny pressure sensations of the actual bubbles right. forming. Everybody thinks yeah. it's the bubbles popping. So, so it's the carbonic acid? Yes. And, crazy. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. But it was a really cool story. So I have a... I guess... So when your soda is flat, I guess the problem is that what's happening is a lot of your carbonic acid is has come out of the solution in the form of the carbon dioxide oh, right, escaping, right. So, right? so the mountain climbers were the opposite. There were gads of bubbles, but it tasted flat. And it turned yeah. out, so why the mountain climbers take this um, anti, what's it called? Altitude sickness medicine mm. that blocks some stupid enzyme, and the enzyme makes the tongue stuff work so the um yeah that was <laughs> welcome <laughs> to the super science happy hour <laughs> <laughs> it was the stupid enzyme from the tongue part that made it work like diamox diamox that's what you take for altitude sickness hmm. uh-huh i don't know how that works actually me either well since this is lightning around maybe we can look it up later and link it in the show notes uh but that's Good that's cool idea so yeah. if you if you did go to a hypobaric situation and, you know, we're willing to put up with the altitude sickness, you'd presumably still taste your soda just fine. Uh, or your champagne. Right, because, I mean, it's not the pressure so much. It's just the, right. the pharmacology. Right. If you, if you drank it before all the bubbles came out of solution. Oh, yeah. I guess that would mean that, you're, that you're, you would have to drink it really quickly because your soda would go flat very quickly in a low-pressure situation. Right. Cool. 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 So also in the taste... I don't even know that there's that much to say about this article, but it deserves notice, this pop science article. Uh, well, I guess, Skelly, you're from the Midwest, so what you just did was literally pop science. <laughs> uh, soda pop science. Uh, but this is from Popular Science. Basically, well, I'll just read the opening paragraph of the Popular Science article. Researchers at the Monell Chemical Census Center made a startling discovery while investigating the sense of taste in mice. Not only do mice have taste receptors on their testicles, but any attempt to remove those taste receptors results in infertility. Whoa. And the headline is, Taste Receptors Found in Mouse Testicles, period. Uh, next sentence, Tasticles? Which is a pretty clever, pretty clever article. So I have a coda to your article there. They're apparently also found in the butt. In the butt? Taste receptors, not testicles. Yeah. Uh, in insert your own joke here. Ew, don't. 
<laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna link to the IMDb article for the human centipede. <laughs> no, but I guess the theory is that they measured sort of the uh, the concentration of various things as they go out, if you will. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so you you can sort of calibrate what what the intestines are like uh, more and less selective for. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting to note. Uh, do you guys know this little bit of trivia? Do you know where the most serotonin is in the human body? The answer may surprise you. I'm going to go with the balls or the butt now. I will also go with balls or butt. <laughs> so Kraus and Skelly both like balls and butt. But the correct answer is the stomach or the Dang small it. intestines or the digestive system in some form. I, forget I guessed butt, which is, you know. Well, it's not that low down in the digestive system. I think it's the stomach, or maybe it's the small intestines. But, you know, of course, most people hear serotonin in a brain context. But actually, serotonin is used for lots of stuff in the body, uh, including to promote... Uh, I think it, like serotonin promotes uh, peristalsis in the digestive system, if I remember right. Which is why, if you're, like, depressed or, conversely, taking antidepressants, it can do weird things to your digestion. Like, you can get constipated or whatever if uh, if you're depressed, I think. So... Well, I mean, okay, sorry, that was a very, like, not science-educated way to say that. But even though serotonin is not the full answer to depression, there is stuff that goes on involving serotonin in depression and in antidepressants. And some of that can interact with the digestive system and, and screw up your digestion, digestion a little bit. Mm-hmm. But all that is to say, like, I think we're very quick to make associations about, like, you know, different cells. And, and people, I think, often be like are wondering, like, why can't we... Why can't we fix uh, imbalances more easily and so forth? But it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these substances and genes and uh, proteins and so forth that are expressed in the brain or, or wherever also have a totally different function somewhere else in the body. And it's actually really complicated when you, uh, when you deal with something that like affects one chemical in one way or like, like they did here. They took out a rec- taste receptor presumably to study taste and they produced infertile mice because they have some more vital function in reproduction that we didn't know about. Hey, does it say which taste receptor it is? Um, if I click through to... It's in... P- <laughs> appropriately enough, or almost appropriately enough... It's in PNAS? <laughs> it's in PNAS. <laughs> which Whoa. is so close, but not not quite. It's only an inch off. Well, it's TAS1R taste receptors. Involved in sweet and umami. Yep. Okay, so it's not... Well, I was thinking if it's a trip channel, it would make sense, because maybe they got too hot or too cold. But, uh, yeah, too much protein. But still, like, our bodies are pretty economical with the stuff they have to use, right? And you need receptors for some stuff. Like, is this, is this like, we know these molecules or assemblies of molecules as taste receptors because that's where we found them first. But does that mean anything? Well, no, but that's, that's why I was guessing because trip channels are, you know, like, uh, temperature sensitive and, you know, like, menthol or capsaicin sensitive. It would sort of make sense for them to yeah. be in, in the balls, but uh, I guess they're not. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend when I was an undergrad, and she, I got really angry. <laughs> you guys know the kind of like intellectual rage I'm talking about, because she looked yeah. at the kind of shampoo I had, and she said, oh, I can't believe you used that shampoo. It has floor wax in it. And... At first, I was embarrassed. I was like, what did I do wrong? Oh, no, my shampoo's wrong. But then I just got I just got so upset. I'm like, no, it doesn't have floor wax in it. It has some ingredients in it that are also ingredients in floor wax. And I'm not sure that I have the um, revulsion to that 
piece of information that you do because I know that things are made of other things and I'm comfortable with that. Was your shampoo also a dessert topping? Yeah, exactly. I was just going to reference that, that SNL bit. That's a Florax <laughs> and a dessert topping. Actually, it probably was, right? It's probably something like, I don't know. Well, it's the dumbest possible example. If they put real lemon extract in Lemon Pledge, does that suddenly make lemons unpalatable? You know, there's lot, there's water in everything. That doesn't make... You know, if you reduce the argument ad absurdum, it's clear right. why that's a dumb yeah. inference to draw. Right. I mean, I guess the, the problem gets to be where, like, people are more using the reasoning, like, if you have a patently artificial molecule, like a type of plastic, but it is a type of plastic that can go into food and not kill you or be used, you know, on your Ikea furniture or something then you can sort of see why people would be more off-put by it. But, you know, we sort of talked about this a little bit in the um, the Twinkie episode. Right, but, but not to get too far afield, but the point is if I have a protein complex that I know as a TAS1R taste receptor because someone found it on a tongue and called it that, and I does that mean that I have taste receptors in the testicles? Yeah. Or does it mean there's not really anything that tasty, taste taste-related about this. Yeah, it's just a molecule being reused for a different purpose, yeah. 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 So, I mean... Well, this is an interesting non-lightning round topic to get into because once you know this, you're under... You know you know this thing that, like, oh, a, a given gene or whatever isn't expressed only in one area or a given protein can have different functions in different places at different times in lifespan and so forth. It leads to really interesting things, but of course it can also, there's there's sort of a slippery slope between like the same taste molecule can be used in, in, in you know, the tongue and the testicles. And, you know, you could follow that all the way down to, you know, I've seen sort of similar arguments applied in the case of like, oh, well that, you know, blue-eyed people could be more intelligent than, you know, brown-eyed people because, the, you know, the genes that blah, blah, blah produce, you know, less melanin in the eyes can, uh, you know, could be linked to blah, blah, blah. You know, so there's, like, dangerous arguments to be made with some degree of scientific plausibility. But it is true that, like, all kinds of things are interrelated that you wouldn't... Like, people would often say... A more innocuous form of it would be like, oh, well, there couldn't possibly be any correlation between, like, shoe size and intelligence or something like that. And you're like, well... Maybe, maybe not. It's complicated, you know? Well, it's even weirder than that, right? Because you'd want the shampoo... The shampoo and Florax sort of do the same thing. and You want something that's going to leave, like, a shiny coat on stuff. Well, yeah. No, so, I mean, right. obviously they'd have the same thing in them. I do... I, just to back up, Matt, you do not have to worry. I was not about to follow you down the slippery slope between the tongue and the testicles. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, anyway. Should I do one last sensory thing, which is kind of cool? Sure. This is more tech cool than, uh, like, science cool, but this is a new thing from Disney Research. Apparently, Disney has a R&D lab, actually several labs, which actually sounds kind of awesome. And why shouldn't they? And they have this cool uh, haptic thing. So it basically shoots puffs of air at you, to make you imagine that things are, are touching you or flying by. So you get this sort of tac tactile experience, even though there's no actual object there. And it looks kind of cool. I just sent you guys the video. Awesome. So is this like the next generation of those Epcot rides where you think the giant dog is sneezing on you? And So is this going to be like, uh, if you, did you guys read Ready Player One? No. no. Okay, well, I mean, it's it's basically, you know, just this 
a virtual a story set in a virtual reality world for the most part. Sort of like the episode of Community where they all play the immersive video game, uh, which I'm assuming you did see. Yes. Except that's all 8-bit and, and Ready Player One is set in like, you know, a future virtual reality that's hyper-realistic. But anyway, the point is that, you know, when you go into this reality, you put on your 3D goggles and your uh, headphones, but you also put on like haptic gloves, you know, that make you feel stuff. So is this kind of like blowing air at you in such a way to produce like hand sensations? Yeah, exactly. It's that, but without the gloves. Oh. It shoots these little vort- vortices at so, you. So it's like air lasers, basically. Yeah. So so one of their demos is you play, uh, like, you're a soccer goalie with a connect, so you block the balls. It looks kind of cool. I, I want to play with one. That's pretty crazy. Well, and even simpler, they have the girl, she's holding out their hands. They they project like a hologram oh, butterfly? of a butterfly. And then when it flaps its wings, she feels the air puffs like it's really there. Yeah. So you get like bimodal perception of this butterfly. And you're like, oh my god, it's real. My brain is so tricked. It's funny because it's like not super high tech. Yeah. But it is really clever. I think it's super precise with the... With the air puffs. Yeah. yeah, I guess you need, like, some, some smarts to aim the thing and to figure out, like, how much of a puff to make. Right, and some nice nice models of how the puff should go. So what's the advantage of this? I guess the advantage is, like, over sort of conventional mechanical haptics. I guess the it's just that you don't have to have gloves or something on there. Yeah, well, I would imagine for Disney, right, you, like, you're sitting on whatever ride. And, yeah. You know, there's, like, a ghost flies by you or... You know, you're on Pirates of the Caribbean and, like, a fake cannonball zooms over your head yeah. or something. That's pretty cool. We used to do a haptic illusion like this in grade school where you would um, – it was also a bimodal representation. You would go behind a girl with uh, long hair and you'd make a big loogie hawking noise and then go <laughs> right in the back of their hair and um, they would think you spit in their hair. So we actually scooped Disney on this by about 15 years. <laughs> you should have published should have mm-hmm. it's a great trick um, you can use it still today <laughs> I'll when I get to the university I'll get right on that do not cite me <laughs> um, okay so can we I really want to do the rainbow thing because that's cool and it takes like two seconds can we can I just tell this cool nugget that I discovered on reddit oh yeah absolutely so the question was asked on reddit whether rainbows have ultraviolet and infrared bands is, the answer is very quick. It's yes. And thanks to Blue Boy Bob for the top-rated comment. The interesting thing about it is not only do rainbows have ultraviolet and infrared bands... Isn't that how IR was discovered? Well, exactly. So he tells the story, and I never knew this, but it's kind of cool. So a guy named Herschel was, you know, putting sunlight through a glass prism to make a rainbow or a spectrum, right? Then put a thermometer, basically, in each color to see what the temperatures were produced when you focused light of each color onto a surface because we know, right, that like certain wavelengths of light have higher or lower energies, right? So Mm -hmm. the higher wavelength colors had higher temperatures in the visible band in the rainbow, but then he decided to put a thermometer just outside the visible rainbow and found that, you know, the, that one on one side, you know, you got a, the lowest temperature on one side, you got the highest temperature and that's how, uh, they found out about infrared light and that it, you know, raises things temperature. Awesome. To bring it all back around, Herschel also discovered Uranus. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. And I think two moons of Saturn or Jupiter, one of them. Internet says Saturn. 
I have to share this anecdote, although I'm not sure I can put this into the podcast. When I was in uh, an undergraduate, uh, our I was in the Glee Club for one year, and uh, we were in rehearsal one day, and our uh, our Glee Club director was like, the air conditioning wasn't on, or maybe there was no air conditioning in the rehearsal room, and he's like, man, it's so hot in here. It's like, uh, it's like, oh, what's the hottest planet? And without thinking, I immediately went, Uranus. <laughs> and uh, there was laughter, but also shame. <laughs> Uh, he was very embarrassed and I was sort of, sort of embarrassed to have said that. Uh, oh, well. Oh, MJ. Yeah. Okay. Any other stuff that we really need to talk about? I mean, we've got so much more that's in our show notes. So we didn't talk about the olives yet. The lateral superior and medial superior olives. We didn't talk about mission to the South pole. Didn't need, we didn't talk about duck genitalia. Any of this, uh, really need to be. No, I think there's nothing pressing. The iodine thing is super cool, but we can talk about this all later if anyone. Anything anyone really wants to talk about left from our topics? Nope, I'm good for now. I'm good. Cool. All right, well, I suppose we should sign off then. Uh, so special super mega thanks to Laurie Skelly, uh, our special guest star Woo-hoo! for this episode, uh, uh, who ended up talking about psychopathy way more than you probably wanted to. No, it's great. Thanks for having me. Yay. I'm very honored. We will have you back again sometime, but we have to let our other neuro friends uh, come on as well. And our, non, our non-neuroscience uh, science friends, because, you know, we would love to uh, expand the knowledge base of uh, people on the show. So if you do another kind of science that's not psychology or neuroscience uh, and want to come I was going to say, on, I could come back as a data scientist. <laughs> it's science. You have to wear a different hat, which no one can see anyway. I could come back as an academic escapee. Yeah, come yeah. Back. Just guys, just let me come back, okay? Done. Deal. I'm sold. We'll just make you wear a false mustache so that no one can tell it's you again. What? It... <laughs> and hide behind a newspaper. <laughs> this is Laurie Skelly broadcasting behind a plant. And yeah. as such, I am not at all the same Laurie Skelly that was on before. Mm-hmm. I, I think an accent I am Laurie Skelly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll have you on again right after we have Stephen Hawking. Hey, we're scheduling is very complicated. <laughs> the part of Laurie Skelly has been replaced by someone who is not Laurie Skelly. <laughs> Scory Lily. All right, anyway. Oh, I see I'm not too late then for the podcast, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. Featherbottom. Yes. <laughs> These associations are all free oh, and you get what you I pay for. I remember you. Uh... All right. Uh, so, yes, special thanks to Skelly. So for general wrap-up stuff, uh, you should go to our website, sshmm.wordpress.com, uh, for show notes with links to everything we talked about and probably more links to things that correct what we speculated about and were wrong on. You should email us at supersciencehappyhour at gmail.com. That's all one word run together. Subscribe on iTunes or subscribe with your favorite podcatcher via the RSS feed, which all of which is linked on the website, so you can go to the website and find all that stuff. Donate some money if you like to buy us better microphones and uh, and bandwidth and so forth. Anything else? No, thanks for listening. Leave mm-hmm. us some more reviews on iTunes. Uh, we'd like to have more. Tell your friends. All right. All right. Shall we sign off? Sounds good. Goodbye, internet listeners. Keep it nerdy. Au revoir.
But yeah, there's a bit of a social stigma, I think, if you eat during Ramadan. Like, do you get looks if you eat? Uh, oh, no, I don't, because they obviously, like... Because you're honky enough? The country is only about 60% Muslim, and it's highly correlated uh, with race. So it's pretty much assumed that if you're not the race that is Muslim, uh, you, you know, you can do whatever. Like, it's one of those countries where if you are a whitey, you can drink alcohol and fornicate and eat all the pork you like. And, you know, people might think How, you're... How's you're that working out for you? Well, the drinking pork. eating pork are doing <laughs> quite well. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I am testing this audacity machine. Okay. It's recording. Do I have to change anything? So what you'll see, you know, you should see like the timeline of your, your sound waves, right? Yeah. Do you guys have retina displays? Are you retina? No, I'm not fancy. No. I'm fancy. And this, and this application looks like balls. Yeah. No, it looks like balls with a regular monitor, too. Well, it looks like pixelated balls on a retina monitor. Hmm. Um, pixelated balls. Pixelated balls. All right, cool. So just don't stop your recording, obviously. Cause, so what we should do now is sync up, mm -hmm. um, like so many sorority girls. Uh, <laughs> can that go in? <laughs> <laughs> it can. Actually, you know that that's... Um, it's apparently a myth, that's a myth. Yeah, the the original research was apparently. Wait, bad. Skelly, weren't you in a sorority? I wasn't in a sorority, but I am from the University of Chicago, where that research originated, by ah. a postdoc ah. named Martha McClintock. That's that's the one, but they've basically recanted that by now, right? Um, yes, I think that it was consistently not replicated over a period of decades. Yeah. And decades. A period. Ah, she said yeah. period. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was trying to decide whether to go with that one or not, but uh, I held off. I, mm -hmm. I blocked the flow of words. Um, <laughs> you just got to stop it up sometime. Uh, is somebody listening to like TV or something in the background? I kind of hear some. Or is that just weird Skype? There's TV in the next room. You want me to be quiet and see if you can hear it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I can is. hear something, but... Yeah, uh, I can hear it, too. It's not the end of the world, but is there a door that can be closed or anything? Yeah, that's super loud. Weird. Okay. Okay. I think it was actually the ceiling fan, which means... Oh, well, I could hear actual, like, voices and stuff, but I, I don't hear it now. Well, I, I hear no voices. The door. But I did hear voices before. They were saying something about, you know, killing my parents, and uh, I don't know. That's weird. Red rum? Yeah. We should be able to discern the brown line going by every so often. The what line? Brown. Oh, the brown line. I thought that was some kind of euphemism. <laughs> I did too. And it was like, what is, what is that one? You know, uh, euphemisms are usually the adaptation of things that exist for real purposes. <laughs> adapted to be oh, dirty. Hush. So there has to be an actual brown line in order for you to say brown line <laughs> about something else. Oh, oh. The review says yes. Skelly? Yes. Johnson? Oh, yes, I'm here. Oh, oh, and then you disappeared. Oh. That's I that happens that. a lot with me. Oh, me too. <laughs> yeah. It's actually me this time, but yeah, each of us do that. Um 
Our tagline on the website is that this is theoretically a funny podcast about science, and it's actually a sad documentary about adult ADD. Um, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Which seems fitting. It might just be an accurate well, descriptor. It, it would be funny if the, this was really just the chronicle of our slow decline into madness and poverty as we as our science careers implode. <laughs> as might go to that in post. Yeah. Okay, we so, should introduce Skelly, which we yeah we should we should we should begin and ourselves and actually start like usable podcast material because it is almost ten a.m. here and we should probably keep it a little snappy because I should go to work at some point. Oh, I have a couple of notes first. All right. Okay. Here's one thing: we have to do a bedroom a bedtime transition switcheroo. Andy has to go to bed at like ten ish something, which is a little more than an hour from now, and we have to switch rooms. So okay. I'm just warning okay. you about that. Oh, um, we can try to be done by then. But but your your computer is portable, right? You're not recording on like ENIAC, so um No, but the door makes noise and you know, I'll be distracted, uh, so that'll just happen at some point. I mean there's quite a bit of editing that goes on behind the scenes because we are not nearly as articulate uh as we well really? we're not you guys that articulate and finished do product. Edit this, huh? <laughs> yeah, sadly <laughs> what you hear is the edited version. <laughs> uh Anyway, so uh, you know that might that be our be new fine. tagline. Uh, yeah. So, all right, uh, that's cool. All right, let's I mean, do this. And, and obviously, like because of that, you can interject asides like that as we go on, and I'll just take them out unless they lead to humor, in which case I leave them in. Is basically how it works. With all these like poor, successful old men being accused of being creeps, I wonder. So. We know a lot of scientists and a lot of very bright people, and most of them are not the most perfectly adjusted men. And let's just talk about men for now because whatever. Yeah. Well, so they reach like a middle range of success. Like you guys right now, you, your like quirks are adorable because you're broke. <laughs> <laughs> so, but can we, what can happens? You, can you write my OK Cupid profile? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what happens if you guys start being like successful, and then you're like, ha 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 ha, look at me, I'm quirky, and people are just like, I'm not into it anymore. I've decided you're no longer my forgivable kooky friend. You're a creep, and stay away from those pretty girls who want to talk to you for the first time in your life. Yeah, I, I guess it is. It's a little bit of like the adult version of how saying Pischetti stops being cute when you're nine and not four. Yeah, I think that the, 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 those guys need some sympathy. So someday we should do one of those contests and get fame and glory and free MathWorks swag. Yeah, one of the like MATLAB. Do they have like MATLAB hacky contests? Yeah, there's like some problem, and I think there's they're not due for another one for a while. Yeah. You should keep like some of the data science competitions on your radar. Like, yeah, I mean, Netflix some challenge. of them are like really heavily like optimization stuff. It's freaking the, the boring, like the Kaggle but... stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's for vagina optimization. <laughs> By the way, I hope but everyone's yeah. still recording. I am. That, that's going that's in. It's going in. <laughs> 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 going in. <laughs> uh, I miss you guys.